In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, O comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things, O treasure of good and bestower of life, come and dwell us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O good one. Sit down. Last talk, which is talk uh, 65, was named Feminism's War on Men, Marriage, Family and Even Women. And the good news was that those present said that they learnt a lot, and in particular women liked it. And overseas, those who have heard it also were writing and expressing that they um, learnt a lot from the talk. Now, the blurb, meaning the description at the back of the last talk, I'm going to read to you. Most of you would have already got it in the, in the uh, newsletters. It says, Feminism is often portrayed as empowering women, and the women's rights movement has indeed achieved a number of positive changes for them, which we discussed last time. In recent decades, however, feminism has taken a different direction by attacking traditional marriage and gender roles. And we'd studied that well in the last talk. In other words, feminism is against. A lot of them are against marriage, and they're also against gender roles. They don't believe that males have that role, females have that role, the husband has a role, the wife has a role. They believe that everyone's equal, so there's no difference in the sexes. Many Orthodox Christians have been influenced by feminism to such an extent that they believe there is little or no difference between the genders and have a distorted understanding of the roles of men and women in marriage. That includes a lot of you here, if not all, because you might come to a talk or come to church, you might read something that's orthodox, which talks about those things, that might be 0.001%, even the legal limits are more, against or to inform people of what the truth is. Most of you are influenced by what you hear. And therefore, there are orthodox Christians who are already married or are going to get married and have no real understanding of what is marriage and what are the roles of men and women in, uh, in the marriage. Although there are a number of reasons for the breakdown of marriage, the family and society in general, the most significant reason is feminism. And that's where I stopped in the, in the blurb. After the, the mail out went out, I realised that a lot of people can become upset with that last line. Although there are a number of reasons for the breakdown of marriage, the family and society in general, the most significant, not one of the reasons, but the most significant reason is feminism. And I was waiting to see how many people will ask to, for their names to be taken off the list. Only three did. And one of them was a monastery, which is quite interesting. So, even some monasteries don't know the, um, what is feminism and the dangers. Then I decided to add a line, 
which will make it more clear and not to allow people to get scandalised or say, what's he saying, they're fanatical, this and that, and that's not true, and feminism is good, and we get equal pay. Now, we know that those aspects of feminism was good, equal pay, the right to vote, and things like that. But that's not, not how it's become now. So I added this line, which I think helps to understand that previous line, which can be a shock to a lot of people. And the line is, in the words of St John Chrysostom, the love of husband and wife is the force that bonds society together. If you have forces that are trying to separate men and women, husbands and wives, marriage, etc., then society breaks down. Because St John Chrysostom says, the love of husband and wife is the force that bonds society together. That's why the Australian government and the American government and a lot of the Canadian and, and, and in, in England, the British uh, over there, they are all coming to the realisation that their societies are crumbling. And the reason why they're crumbling is because of the disaster against traditional marriage. And actually, they are trying to, even Obama, who's quite liberal, he's actually trying to say that uh, people should get married. Of course, he also says that same sexes should get married, but that's another problem. But So the love of husband and wife is the force that bonds society together. Therefore, it's justified to say anything which goes against traditional marriage is a move towards the destruction of society as we can see today. There's something wrong. If you can't see that, then that's sad. And I want another little part I'm going to read and then we'll go on. St John Chrysostom said the following. Now, the first sentence I've read a number of times, just about in every marriage talk that I've done since uh, talk 54. I didn't think that I was going to, it was going to be that many talks. 54. 55, 56, 57, 58 and 59 were on magic. 60, 61 were on, on that type of things as well. But 62, 63, 64, 65, today 66, and there's still another couple to go. That's showing you how important this topic is. St John Christum said, a certain wise man, when setting out which blessings are the, are the most important, included a wife and husband who live in harmony. Now, there are, of course, those who don't believe in marriage, but many at least want a relationship. That's why they go on those harmony.coms and things like that. They're looking for someone to have a harmonious life with, to be united. And they're seeking that, even though they don't hardly find that. But that's what they want. Which person does not want to have a harmonious relationship, unless, of course, they're feminists, a lot of them who believe that they can have children without men and that they don't need men in their family. We discussed all that uh, last time. So a wife and a husband who live in harmony is that which is considered to be the greatest blessing. There is no relationship, St John Christen goes on, there is no relationship between human beings so close as that between husband and wife. 
if they are united as they should be. Now, that's, I've underlined that. I underlined two things. A wife and a husband live in harmony. What's the reason why people divorce today? What's the main thing? Oh, we don't get on. There's no harmony in the house. And the other one I underlined is, if they are united as they should be, the key is that a lot of people don't know how to be united. They have no idea of what a marriage is and what does a man and a woman who get married, what does that mean? It, some people believe that it means that because you like someone that you might have met at some inappropriate place or someone who you had sexual relations on the first night or, what, or other ways of how people meet, they believe that that's the main thing is that if you like someone you lo- and supposedly love them. People don't even know what the word love means and they make those, they make those expressions for making me sick and make love and make love. So they call sexual relations making love. I think some animals have more love. At least they protect each other. A lot of relationships today, when the going gets rough, they run. Oh, she's got some faults. I don't like it. I'm going to run. Oh, he's a bit, he's a bit messy. I don't like that. I'm going to run back to mum. I've got to clean the clothes. I don't like that. When I was living at home, my mum used to do it. Even men have left their wives because they said that my wife doesn't cook the steak as good as my mum. And that's how sick it is. So people don't know what it is to be married. And that's why I love what St John Christian says. Yes, it's a great relationship. Nothing is greater on earth as that between a man and a woman when they're married. If they are united as they should be, and that's what we're going to discover today. How should they be united? What is the role of a man? What is the role of a woman? If you went into a worldly job and your position was whatever, say, clerical assistant, but you're trying to do the job of the CEO, that's not going to work because that's not your position. Or if you're meant to do cleaning and then people in the night come there and find you on the computer thinking that you are some office admin person, that's not going to work. Everyone has to know their roles. So if that doesn't work within society, then it's not going to work in a marriage if people don't know what their roles are. And who determines what the roles are? The feminists? No. The the secular priests, orthodox priests? No. Sex therapists? The radio, the people that they bring on the radio sometimes to come and make comments about relationships, even though they're under disasters. Who's going to tell us what the role is? The church. The church will tell us 
But some of you might say, but you just said that the, some of the worldly priests, that doesn't mean that they're the church. They're a, a, cl a clergyman of the church, but they're not the church. We have to look at what does the church teach and how do we know what the church teaches? Through the Bible, through the synods. Synods that were recognised universally and through, obviously, the Holy Fathers whose writings have been recognised by the whole church, such Father is St John Chrysostom. His writings, his interpretations of the Bible are recognised universally. And as I've said before, the mouth of Christ is St Paul. Whatever St Paul said in his epistles, the fathers say it's as if Christ himself said it. So the mouth of Christ is St Paul and the mouth of St Paul is St John Chrysostom. Whatever St John Chrysostom said, it's as if St Paul himself said it. That's what we're going to look at. And of course, we can read other fathers and saints or modern or, or, or clerics that live today or have passed away recently. We can read those things as long as what we're reading is in agreement with what we read from the Holy Fathers. Now, in this talk, we're going to examine in particular, three verses of chapter 5 of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And we're going to divide up into part A, part B, part C. Part A, which we're going to analyse, is, is this following thing. Wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's the first one, which sends shockwaves with people. People don't like that. Now, some men like it because they think that that's an excuse for them to be a pig, while women don't like it because they say no one's going to control me. B, for the, for the husband is the head of the wife. That's another thing we're going to examine. And C, and the wife must fear her husband. Now that one, that one sends feminists um, spinning. Now let's read the epistle quickly, which I did in the last talk. This is the same epistle which is also read during the marriage ceremony. So when, we, when you go to an orthodox marriage, this is what, the, what epistles read. The gospel is the one about Christ and Cana, where he blessed the wine, the water made of wine. But this is the one. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, she meaning the church. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must fear her husband. That's the epistle. I had a little part in the beginning. Now, a lot of you will say, I can pick up a couple of words, a few sentences there, but in general, it sounds very deep, very theological, and that's true. I mean, until I studied it myself to present this talk, I didn't really understand it myself, a lot of it. So I learnt a lot by studying it. I had no real need to study it because I'm not married. But for the, for the sake of the talk, I um, decided let's, let's do this. And the more I looked into it, the more I saw that this is so great, so important, but unknown. People just don't know what things are. Now, let's look at the part A. We'll do the first part. I'll read it again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And there's another line just a few later. And so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In the book, Marriage, a Spiritual Arena, which a lot of you have been, were given years ago, I gave them out for free. I think there's only one left, if that. Uh, that was a very good book. And that was written by Archman Dreit Vasilius Bakoyanis, who is a priest of, his, of the Greek archdiocese in Greece. And obviously he wrote it in, in, in Greek and then it was translated in English. I liked it because he's very thorough. He, went, he goes through a, a lot of the issues which uh, people are interested in. Now, he said, what if, what if soon after the marriage a problem arises for a couple? For example... They're planning to get away for the weekend. The husband wants to go to the beach while the wife wants to go to the mountains. They both insist on their preferences. If someone doesn't give in, an argument will follow. Instead of having a nice weekend and the weekend becomes grey, someone must give in. Who will it be, the man or the woman? Elder Epiphanius, a Greek elder I read in the last talk, he posed the same thing. He said that a man and woman that were gonna, about to get married came to him and asked him the question, who should listen to who? The woman said, he should listen to me. He was saying, no, she should listen to me. And then he gave an explanation which is similar to what this Archman is gonna say. Now his answer is, meaning the Archman right? the Apostle Paul says, wives should um, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So he picks those two lines which we're talking about today. So according to the spirit of scripture, the woman should be the first to submit. So this priest is saying that what the Bible says is that the woman should, do, should, should, should submit. Elder Epiphania said the same, which we're going to hear in a minute. But that poses a lot of questions and there's no, there's no, it's not a, a sin to have questions. What, what's a sin is when we become rebellious, blasphemous, when we start kicking in the air, 
What's the difference? I can read something and I say, I don't understand that, but I read that before and now, now it's saying that I'm confused. I want to know. That's okay. I have a sincere desire to know what it is. But when we, but this is a different thing is when someone reads it and they've already got their mat up their mind, I don't like this. I don't like this thing about women submitting. So they're not questioning to see what's the truth of the matter, but they're blaspheming and going against and saying, no, this, this can't be true and whatever anyone tells me, I'm not interested. Anyway, let's look at some questions. Some questions, if we ask humbly, could be, why is it that the wife has to submit to the husband, not the husband to the wife? So in other words, why did St Paul write that? Why can't decisions be made jointly? That's another question which some say. Does this mean that the wife is the husband's servant or slave? What happens if a husband doesn't take his responsibility seriously or makes mistakes in his decisions? What happens if the husband wants his wife to do something which is sinful or harmful for the family? Must he still be obeyed? Because remember what St Paul said. So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Does that mean everything? Does that mean what even sin, if the, if the man tells you to do something that's sinful, does that mean that the wife has to submit? If you notice, I'm not answering the questions because we're going to come to that. The next point, someone might have an idea, are the feminists correct when they say that men want women to be subject to them, that is to dominate them? Because that's what the feminists teach that the church is repressive, that the church is against women, that St Paul was a misogynist means that he hates women. So that's uh, another question that someone might have, and we've got to be careful that one because that could border on a bit of blasphemy there. How do we know if there is another meaning to this verse? Now, some people might say, okay, yes, St. Paul says that. Maybe there's another meaning. Just like when we read in the Bible, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Which saint cut their hand off? So if they sinned with their hand, where do we read that someone cut off their hand? So maybe St. Paul's instructions got something, some other meaning in it. It is important to know what was the verse before the one where St. Paul says that women should submit to their husbands. There's a little verse before that. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So St. Paul first says that, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Then he jumps to women, submit to your husbands. Now that's important because why does he, why does he first say, in general, people should submit to one another? in the fear of God. And then he goes on to speak about that. Could it, could it be that perhaps St Paul knew that there could be a reaction from women who could say, why do I have to submit? And therefore, St Paul in the, in the beginning says, well, really, people should submit to each other. But then he connects it with that. Now, the verse, submitting to one another in the fear of God, this verse con co covers three virtues. Hum uh, humility, 
obedience, which is submission, and fear of God. There are three virtues contained just in that one sentence. Now, some of you might not even know what the word virtue means. I'm not saying that to be rude because some of you knew. Some, some of you have heard what virtues are but have no real understanding of it. Because remember, Christianity is life. It's a life. It's not a philosophy like the ancient Greek philosophers used to sit around Athens and just yap all day about things that had no practical meaning and just used to philosophise. But Christianity is not a philosophy. It's a life. And it can only be understood if you practise it. Let me tell you something about my teaching days. So you're going to give a test for a mathematics topic. It could be a topic to do with perimeter, area, volume, surface area. So there's a lot of formulas. The area of a circle, the circumference of a circle, the volume of a pyramid, volume of a cylinder, so many, so many, volume of a sphere. So you give the test and then students sit for it and some of them fail. And then they get very upset because they say, I don't understand, I learnt all my formulas. I learnt all the formulas off by heart. That's philosophy. What do I mean by that? It means that the person might have learnt the formulas but he had no idea of how to apply them because he didn't do any practice. Same as a car. Remember, I think I've mentioned once before when I was young, and stupid, I got into a car when I was only young, as I said, when I was very young, and because I saw people driving the car, I thought it was easy. So, because I was unsupervised, that's why children should be unsupervised, I started the car up of, of an uncle, and then I, and then I started to drop, drop a little bit, and I, and I noticed that I couldn't, I had no idea of accelerator, brake and steering wheel. And I nearly smashed it and I got scared. And what did that teach me as I thought about it later on? That you can't learn something theoretically. It, you have to practice it. So it's the same as in the Christian faith. You can't understand Christianity, orthodoxy, unless you practice it. A lot of people sit and read books. That's not enough. So how can we understand what St Paul meant when we don't understand the church's teaching on obedience? Because this is all to do with obedience. And again, I'm not being rude, but a lot of people don't have an idea of what obedience is, or if they've read it in books, they have not applied it to their own life. So they might read an ascetical book, like I'm going to read some sections tonight, Elder Joseph, this new book that's out now. It talks about obedience. People read it, read it, read it. By the end of it, they haven't even understood the importance of obedience. They might have marvelled, oh, he had a vision. He was able to eat once every three days or other ascetics that went one week or 40 days without water and people try to do those things. But do they try to the other parts of the life, like the humility, the obedience, 
admitting your mistakes. No, no, not, people aren't interested in that. They're interested in what the devil makes them interested in, things that will destroy them, excessive fasting, visions and things like that. People hone in on that. But they don't look at the aspects of the life which are important for us as beginners, including myself. And remember, St Paul's words are Christ's words. In other words, the verses, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, and so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything, those two verses we've already established is from God. It's as if Christ is saying, that's it. But the problem here is, what do they mean? So to, to, to help us understand what they mean, I had an idea to go through some of the church's teachings on obedience. And that way, by doing that, after we've gone through that, I, I call that like background knowledge or prerequisite knowledge. I used to use it as well when I used to teach. So when you're going to teach a topic, if it's trigonometry or something like that, and you're going to be using triangles and angles, you've got to first make sure that the children have basic skills in those things. That's why in the textbooks they call them prep quiz or prerequisites or background information. So people can get those, teach, learn those, and then that way when they go into the, the uh, teaching on the trigonometry, they've already got these little basics that they need to know. How many degrees in, an ang in a triangle? What's a right angle? Things like that. So you need all that. So it's the same here. How can I as a priest, sit down today or stand here and explain what does it mean by submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives submit to your husbands and everything. How can I explain that if people don't have an idea of what obedience is? Because it's obviously got to do with obedience. So what's the first thing I've, I, um, I've got here for our prerequisites today? One is from the life of St. Dorotheos of Gaza. Now, St. Dorotheos of Gaza was unsettled because he felt continuous peace. Because when we feel continuous peace, it's a high chance, 99%, if not more, that we have been deceived. He was concerned that he may have fallen into deception because in the Holy Bible, one reads that we must endure many tribulations and sufferings in order to be saved. And I examined this in detail in talk 44, 44 maybe it was the deception ones, I think, 41, maybe 42, where about people who say, I've got love, love, I'm full of love, or people that say, I've got peace and peace, all the time peace, like the Jehovah Witnesses. You can tell them off. You can wet them with a hose. You can do whatever you want. I'll walk off peace. Now, they're either saints or they're possessed, one of the two. But then they don't believe that Christ is God. So peace, we can have peace simply because the devil leaves us alone. If the devil has us in pride, why should he bother us for? See, when a person comes to me and they've got these eyes and they're glassy and they're peaceful and they speak, I have to question one, are they on drugs 
Or two, are they deceived? Or three, both. <laughs> so I have to examine what's going on. Because Rasputin also had very glassy eyes. I don't feel comfortable with those people. What I feel comfortable with when a person comes up to me and says, Father, I need some help, what's wrong? I've got sexual thoughts, I've got blasphemous thoughts, I've got thoughts against people, I've got jealousy, I've got hate, I've got negativity towards my spouse, whatever. I'm comfortable with that. Because that's to me, is a person who's struggling. But the other ones that are in Lululand, they're very dangerous. So Saint Dorotheos of Gaza, as all of our Orthodox saints, knew very well that continuous peace is dangerous. Even a lot of great saints did not have continuous peace. Where Saint Anthony complained to Christ, he was being tortured by demons continually appearing to him and, to and tormenting him. And after many years, then he found some peace and then he said to Christ, where were you? He goes, I was here, but I was watching you, your struggle. Saint Nectarius suffered. And a lot of times he was disturbed because of the hate and the persecutions that he went through. If, if, you, if you remember from the life that I did, in the beginning, a lot of times he was in tears, he was very upset with what they had, what they had done, the other bishops. Towards the end of his life, when the prosecutor came because that stupid possessed woman accused him of um, having sexual relations with her daughter, and then the prosecutor came there to the monastery. If you read the life at that point, it's very interesting that when he came in and started screaming and threatening to pull his beard and, and saying to him that I know you have babies with the nuns and where have, you, where, have you, where have you buried them and all these madnesses, he sat there peaceful. He had progressed so much after all his years that he had finally come into like, peace. But that's very exceptional. So when you read other lives of saints, you see that some of them were so upset and so disturbed with what was going on, they even died from, from the pain of it, especially when they saw the church being persecuted and churches being burnt and things like that. So continuous peace is dangerous. So let's see what happened here. So um, he went to St. John the prophet and opened his heart to him and said to him, Father, I'm scared. How many people go today to, a, to confession and ask someone with some experience, say, uh, I've got this, I've got that thought, I feel this, what do you think, Father? Do you think that's... And even if the priest doesn't know, when God sees that you are opening and being humble, he'll protect you. But a lot of times we don't do that. We just trust our feelings. I feel it in my heart. That's it. It must be from God. I had that thought. It must be from God. Trusting thoughts, which is very dangerous. But that's not how spirituality is. A spiritual person is a person who doesn't trust himself or herself. That's a true spiritual person. Now, St. John replied to him, all those who give themselves to the obedience of the fathers possess this freedom from care and this rest. In other words, what St. John the prophet is saying is that a person who is obedient, a person who lets go of their will, receives 
an abundance of grace. Because why? When someone lets go of their will, it means that they are letting go of their ego, of their pride, and God loves the humble, as we will see as we go on. Now, from the book The Evergetinos, which is published by the Centre for Traditional Orthodox Studies 2008. Now, that had some beautiful little stories. They've got like, de- like sayings of the Desert Fathers and things like that. It says, Once four brothers from a certain skeet went to St. Pambo the Great. Each of them revealed to P- Pambo the virtue of the other. One had great faith, the second possessed absolutely no property. The third had attained to great love for others, and the fourth had for 22 years straight, for 22 straight years, been in obedience to, his, to an elder. After he heard this, the saint said to them, quote, "I assure you that the virtues of this fourth monk is greater than the virtues, the virtue of you others, since each of you others, regardless of the virtue he possesses, achieved it by his own will. This monk, however, has cut off his will and does the will of another, and for this reason he is your superior. Those who obey are confessors of the faith since they preserve their obedience until the end. And another one from the life of St. Rufos, October the 22nd, This holy monk struggled in asceticism in the desert of Egypt during the 4th and 5th centuries, also known as Ava Rufus or Elder Rufus. Elder Rufus also related to his disciples something that had been told to him by one of the fathers. So the father said to this elder, so one of the other monks came to this elder and told him a story. He said, I was taken up into heaven and saw four categories of men. In the first category, I saw a man who had been ill but who, despite his illness, pleased God. And that is pleasing. When someone is sick and they can't get better and they endure it with patience, that is, that person receives a lot of grace from that. That's why God allows sicknesses. In the second category was a man who had shown hospitality to the brothers, receiving them with willingness and caring for them. That's doing good works especially love of neighbour. In the third category was one who lived in the desert alone and saw no man, an ascetic, which a lot of us think that they are usually, they are, the, they are really holy because they're ascetics, they live on their own. And in the fourth category was one who willingly obeyed a spiritual father and submitted to him in everything for the sake of the Lord. That's the fourth one. Of these four categories of men, the fourth, that is, the man of obedience, wore a gold medallion around his neck and was greater in glory than the others. As soon as I saw his glory, continued the elder, I asked my guide, obviously he was taken to heaven where he saw this by an angel, I asked my guide, how is it that this one who is the youngest has more glory than the others? My guide answered, because the one who practised hospitality and the hermit in the desert who lives alone chose these virtues with their own will. The one in obedience, however, abandoned his will wholly and depended on God and his spiritual father. Thus, for this reason, 
his self-denial has been more greatly glorified than that of the others. Not that the others weren't glorified. But he was given more, he had more glory. Just so that, you know, a lot of ascetics that do go and live in the desert on their own, they're doing that from self-will. You know, there are others who live in the desert who, uh, let's put it this way, that they didn't fall into deception. However, because their life is their own will to a little to, to some extent, it's more difficult for them to reach greater heights because of that self-will aspect. But the one who's completely does the will of their spiritual father in the monastic setting it get, has the greater glory. Then St. Rufus cried out, obedience, the salvation of all the faithful, obedience that gives birth to all the virtues, obedience that discovers the kingdom, obedience that opens heaven, enabling men to ascend there from the earth, obedience, the nourishment of all the saints who have drunk of your milk and in so doing become perfect, obedience that dwells with the angels. So he started to praise the value of obedience. Now, some of you might say about that, are you telling us that we have to go to a spiritual father like Manathos and what, how about our wives? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is listen to how the church looks at obedience in its pure form. Those who are absolutely obedient. Two brothers in the flesh, meaning brothers, you know, once went to live in a monastery. Now, one of these was an ascetic, while the other preferred obedience. So one lived in the desert on his own. The other brother lived in a monastery. With such willingness did the obedient brother obey his spiritual father that he performed everything which his spiritual father told him without any hesitation. He was completely obedient to his spiritual father. Many times his spiritual father would tell him in the morning, eat, and he would eat. Other times, on the other hand, his spiritual father would say, do not eat until the evening, and he would not eat. Furthermore, in general, whatever his spiritual father commanded, he carried out with joy. For this obedience, he was praised by all the monks of the monastery. Seeing this, his ascetical brother, the one that used to live by himself in the desert, became jealous and said to himself, I will test my brother to see if he's really obedient, if he has real obedience. He therefore went to the abbot and said to him, send my brother with me so that we might go to a certain place where we are needed. The abbot allowed his disciple to leave, gave the blessing and said, okay, you can go with your brother. When the two brothers came to a river which was full of crocodiles, the ascetic said to his brother, go into the river and cross it. The obedient monk went into the river, but the crocodiles came and licked his body without be bothering him at all. When the ascetic saw this, he told his brother, come out of the river. And he came out unharmed, continuing their journey. They found a dead man on the road, naked. So the ascetic said, if only we had an old piece of clothing so as to cover him. Then his brother, the obedient brothers, answered, what's even better, let us pray. Perhaps God will hear us and resurrect him. So the two brothers prayed together. And they began to pray. And after the prayer, the dead man rose. The ascetic boasted and said that the dead man arose on account of his asceticism. 
of all his years in the desert. God revealed to the abbot of the monastery all that happened to the two brothers. When they had returned to the monastery, the abbot said to the ascetic, why did you seek to test your brother in the river in such a dangerous manner by making him go in with the crocodiles? Pay attention to my words. It was through obedience that the dead man was raised, not because of your asceticism, which you did out of self-will. I love the Evergetinos. Of course, there are things in there a little bit difficult. They are meant more for monastics, but if someone knows how to read the, that book with humility and just get some nice examples from it, not to go to the zoo and jump in with some crocodiles and things like that and take and, um, and do other things beyond them. So Elder Paisios considered obedience to be a therapy for every illness of the soul, especially pride. Now, that's in his book, The Life of Elder Paisios. And somewhere there, I found that and said, Elder Paisios considered obedience to be therapy for every illness of the soul. We pass it on. Let's move on. Let's find a miracle. Let's find something where he had clairvoyance, where he told someone their name. So what? Big deal. You can go to some magicians today and they can tell you your name as well and how many children you've got. They can even guess the future sometimes because, of, as I mentioned, other talks. Am I putting down the saint by saying that? No. It's fancy look at the life of a saint and out of it becoming ecstatic and say he knew the name. And then you've got people who go and try to look for elders in the hope that they're going to say their name. Why hope? Why travel? Just go and tell them your name. Why do you have to go and look all around the world for an elder? It's going to say, John, welcome. And don't think it's not, that's not what it, people do that. Beginners. That's okay. Beginners. I went through that. Everyone in the beginning, they go through these stupidities. But you mature a bit. Like a child. He can pretend he's a doctor. He can believe he's a doctor. But as he matures and he fails the HSC, he realises he's not a doctor. <laughs> right? That's it. He comes to a reality. So it's the same as us. We're, we're immature in the beginning, but we don't stay there. So we miss out on this part. He considered obedience to be therapy for the every illness of the soul, especially pride. An Orthodox Christian who does not have the idea, the understanding that they're sick spiritually has not progressed. The first sign that someone's progressed in, the, in, in a spiritual life is the fact that they sense within themselves sickness of soul and that they can see that that sickness, a lot of it stems from pride. So Elder Patience says, you want to get better? Obedience is the way. He would emphasise the following, quote, there's Elder Bezos' words, obedience is the quickest and easiest way. It's the key to paradise. In obedience, the will is cut off as well as selfishness and the passions. And when the grace of God comes, life becomes paradise. So when someone is obedient, they're already living paradise on earth because the kingdom of heaven is within us. So there are people that live a life of hell and they, within their heart they feel that they're, their heart's on fire. So they're already tasting hell. 
And there are people who, out of obedience, because of their, they're obedient, they do, they're, they're struggling, they are already tasting paradise. And that's what Elder Paisio says. Now, Elder Porfirios, in the book Wounded by Love, the Elder Paisio's quote, by the way, was Elder Paisio's Manathos by Hiram Monk Isaac, which is the green book at the back. It's an excellent book. Now, Wounded by Love is another book. Elder Porfirio said, this is what he said himself, <clears throat> about himself, my whole life was a paradise. Again, we're using that word. Remember that the elders in the Evergetinos use the same word as well. Oh, blessed obedience, paradise on earth. Elder Paisus used the word paradise. And now Elder Porfirios, or Saint Porfirios, now canonised last, I think, December in Greece. Uh, he died in 1991. Uh, Elder Paisius died in 1994, yet to be canonised, but in the consciousness of the church, he's already, everyone recognises him as a saint. And the church will officially uh, canonise him soon. Now, Elder Porfirio says, my whole life was paradise, was a paradise. Prayer, worship, handicraft and obedience to my elders. But my obedience was the outcome of love, not coercion. Now, that's important. Because the devil comes on and says, obedience, it's slavery. When you, see, when you hear about monks being obedient or nuns, that they're slaves. But... Elder Porfirio said that his love towards... He had two elders because they lived together there. Um, his, he, um, his love, sorry, his obedience did not come because he was forced. He was obedient because he loved his elders. He was obedient because he wanted to be obedient. Just like when someone goes to the army for training and they really train them hard, putting them down, calling them names, you're weak, get up, try climb there, do that, you're an idiot put them down, swearing, um, a lot of, like, they really, and these people, if they're not really there for the right reason, they're not going to endure, are they? So you say, well, how do they endure it? Because they want to do it. They want to become army officers or whatever they're training to do. The same as those stupid shows, those American Idols and all those, The Voice and the other one, I forgot them now, that I, I can't, um, The Voice is one more. Oh, there's X factors and everything and stupid factors. So <laughs> what happened there is that you look at those and some of you that watch it, unfortunately, but we say um, they get ridiculed in front of national television and the American ones are showed all over the world on those um, cable televisions. And these people are being told your voice was off, you didn't do it properly, you didn't practice, I didn't like it, it sounded corny. And these people just sitting there, yeah, thank you, thank you, for the, thank you for the constructive criticism, thank you, I'll try to apply that. Why? Because they want to become a star. They want to make a lot of money. For whatever reason, the thing is that they're there. If they weren't there for that reason, they wouldn't do it. So the same as in a monastery. When someone goes to the monastery and they're told to do things which might be logical or, and they've, they're, as they say, they're not slaves, they want to do that because they have a goal and the goal is that the more they let them, their own will go, the more close they become to God. 
So Elder Porfirio said, this blessed obedience benefited me greatly. It changed me. I became sharp-witted, quick and stronger in body and soul. It made me know everything. I must glorify God day and night for granting me the possibility of living in this way in this life. And that's true. Elder Porfirio acquired the gift of clairvoyance. And he could talk about topics that he had no idea about. And he did. He had, he was astound, it was astounding how much insight he had into all topics. Obedience is something I have poured over and studied minutely. The other things that God has given me in my life came on their own. The gift of clear sight, in other words, the clairvoyance and things like that, was also given to me by God on account of obedience. So when we go to these magicians or when you hear some monk or ascetic or whatever and we hear that they've got, that they know things and yet you've got to say, well, who, where did, how do they know these things? Have they been obedient to anyone? Have they lived the life of, an, of obedience? And if they haven't, then you've got to question, really, is that from God? Obedience shows love for Christ and Christ especially loves the obedient, says Saint Porfirios. Christ especially loves the obedient. That is why he says, I love those who love me and those who seek me and, and those who seek me will find grace. Proverbs 8.17. Everything is written in scripture but in a concealed manner. So what do we, what do we learn from the elders that we read in the Evergetinos? from Elder Paisios, from Elder Porfirios, there's no spiritual progress without obedience. Now, what obedience does have to do with you people in the world, we'll see as time goes on. But as long as we're today, at least up to this point, we can say that we've learnt the importance of obedience and how satanic rebellion is and how demonic disobedience is. I remember I was helping this woman and she said, I, I don't listen to anyone. I do whatever I want to do. And I thought to myself, poor thing, she will get sick, as we're going to hear all the babies will say. And she did. Because pride makes a person blind, sick, the devil is pride. God is humility. His humility is so great that he even came down and was willing to be crucified, suffered as a human for us, even though he's God. And the angels worship him. So that's how humble he was. So God is humility, the devil's pride. Our state dictates who we will gravitate towards. If we are proud, whether we know it or not, we gravitate towards the demons. And if we are humble, we gravitate towards God, the mother of God, the saints and the angels. A proud person would find it very uncomfortable to be near God. And that's why people say, oh, God is cruel because he's going to put people in hell. God doesn't put people in hell. The people that go there are themselves burning, as you notice from the icon of the talk that I did talk 30 or 
29, one of those two. It's got a picture of the saints in heaven and those in hell. And it shows the grace coming from God. The grace coming to the saints is golden. And the, and the grace, still grace, that's coming from God still and going to those in hell is red, fiery. What is burning them is the grace which they rejected and hated while they're on earth. So it's the grace which burns them. So, obedience in the armed forces, obedience in sports, where the sports people there treat their coaches like God, whatever they say. That's okay. No one, no one has a problem with that. They get abused too, by the way. But what's their aim? The gold medal at the Olympics. So they will do it. What? They, will, they will be obedient. They will go for everything. In the, in the music and entertainment industry, I just told you that. And in apprenticeships where people go to learn from someone, if they're not obedient, then there's no point. And a lot of even butchers, they say, that they can't even find apprentice butchers because a lot of the kids today... Uh, can't follow instructions. So with the butchers trying to show him how to cut meat, this apprentice says, I can do it myself, and ends up cutting his finger. And all those type of things. Now, let's go back to my Elder Joseph, the book by Elder Ephraim. Francis, that's Elder Joseph's lay name, this is before he became a monk, Francis and Father Arsenios went to these blessed old monks at the end of 1923. With all his might, Francis dedicated himself to blessed obedience in order to please his elders. See, he willfully, he wanted to be obedient, but not slavery. Even when someone comes to the church, when I notice, that's why a lot of times I don't confess people anymore, oh, it's too much for me. When I notice that you tell someone something and they're just like, it's like, um, it's like they're kicking and get, like within themselves. They can't. You just got to say, "Look, go somewhere else." I hate, and I really do mean I not hate people, but I hate the idea of someone leading a spiritual life because they're forced. If you remember in the life of Saint Orphidios where there was a woman there that had come to become a novice and then she decided she didn't want to stay, she wanted to leave. When some of the other nuns heard it, they go, oh, if you leave, you leave, you're going to go to hell, you're not going to be saved, you've got to stay here, whatever, whatever. When St. Porphyrus heard that, he told off the nuns and said, how dare you do that? You'd never force anyone. Let her go. Elder Porphyrus did not like any type of coercion in to do with spiritual life, with obedience, etc. He wanted the person to be free to do what they want. That's why Christ said, whoever wants to follow me, let him follow, take up his cross. Christ forced no one. The apostles forced no one. People didn't want to submit. People didn't want to listen to the church. Then they were let go. So here... Francis, that means Elder Joseph before, dedicated himself in order to please his elders. 
He loved them even more than himself. He didn't treat obedience as a chore, as a burden, but he served the old monks with a joy that flows from love. For when you truly love someone, you spontaneously do whatever you can to make that person happy. That's a, that's a bit of a hint for today's talk. When you love someone, you do whatever you can to make that person happy. Young Francis quickly realised from his own experience that the more reverence one has for one's elder, the more grace one receives. He would constantly teach this great lesson to all who would later come to him for advice when he became an elder himself. It was not long before Francis and Father Asenos saw the fruits of their obedience. Because of their obedience, it was natural that they found great ease in prayer. In this way, Francis realised from his own experience why the Holy Fathers praised holy obedience, which is what I'm doing today. I'm trying to bring to your attention and my own how important is obedience. Now, we're not going to get to this level, but nevertheless, let's have an idea or at least be jealous in a good sense. Let's be jealous and say, I'm such a rebellious pig, I'm so disobedient, including my, I'm so proud, I can't even listen to anyone and woe to me, God help me, forgive me. That's something. But to reject it and say, what's the value of obedience? That's for slaves. Since then, Francis held holy obedience as the most important virtue. Not prostrations, not fasting, not prayer ropes. Those things can make one proud. But obedience doesn't make one proud because it, it, it cuts the ego, you see. In fact... He wrote to someone, quote, personally, I have never seen anything more comforting in my soul than perfect obedience. So when I hear of someone who says, oh, I find prayer so easy, and who's your spiritual father? Um, oh, just the parish priest. And so what is he? What's he told you about prayer? Nothing. So who's guiding you? Because myself. So then how do you find it easy? See, but that does happen. There are exceptions where God can give grace if someone can't find someone. The best would be to have someone that can guide you. But if someone exists and a person doesn't go to that person, why would God give that person grace? It's like God is saying to that person, congratulations, that's good. Even though you're not being guided, even though you're self-willed, self-willed, even though you're full of ego and you're proud that you're doing your prayer, I will give you grace. That doesn't work like that. Know full well that he who is not obedient to one will be obedient to many and in the end remains insubordinate. What does that mean? He who is not obedient to one, meaning a spiritual father, will be obedient to many, meaning who, what? The passions, the demons, the fashion, the world, whatever. You see, the further away someone is from church, the more they're slaves. And the closer one is to God, the more they're free. Still passions, but they're struggling. But the one who's further, they are slaves to their passions and everything else. That's why 
obedience to one or obedience to many. Like that woman I said that said, I don't listen to anyone. I said, well, soon you will be obedient. You will be obedient soon. And she became obedient to her own passions, her self-trust. And she became a slave. Elder Paisio said, I've come to understand that obedience is very helpful. If one has even a little intelligence, if he's obedient, he can become a philosopher. When he says philosopher, he means someone that's with discernment, like a person that's got wisdom, not the philosophers that sat around Athens and talked about boring things. So let's read that again. If one has even a little intelligence, if he's obedient, he can become a philosopher, someone progressed. Whether one is intelligent or not, healthy in body and spirit or not, if he's tormented by thoughts, he will be liberated by obedience. Obedience is redemption. He's going to go on now, talk about mental illness. And even though it's a little bit, a little bit off the topic, but still I want you to see, I said I'm going to put this in because it's got to do with obedience. It will help us understand later on whether a woman should be obedient to the husband, etc. Elder Paisio says, the greatest egoist is he who follows his thoughts and does not ask anyone for guidance and direction, leading himself to destruction. So what's the definition of an egotist? How do we know if, we're an, if we um, have the demon of egoism? How do we know? We know that if we follow our thoughts, we trust our own thoughts, and we don't feel the need to ask anyone. A person who's truly humble will ask even someone who may not even be as, let's just say, even as high up as them because you see these CEOs, these very successful people, they're always, when they do their meetings, they sit there and they're always open listening to ideas. What do you think? What do you think? A good president or prime minister does that. He asks advice. What do you think? Now, the current one in America, they say, doesn't ask anyone's advice. But good ones were always seeking advice. In the spiritual life, seeking advice. Someone may be extremely smart and very perceptive, but if he's willful, self-confident and selfish, he's also constantly tormented. Now that's important. Now someone can be intelligent and gifted in what they're doing, but if they're willful, self-willed, if they're self-confident, if they're selfish, then those people are usually tormented by their thoughts and hence why they need medication. He becomes very confused, he or she, becomes very confused and many problems are created for that person. In order to find his way, he must open his heart to a spiritual father and humbly ask for his help. However... 
Some people, instead of going to a spiritual father, instead they go to a psychiatrist. If the psychiatrist is a spiritual person, he will recommend that his patients go to some spiritual father. Now, this is a problem in Australia. He's speaking about psychiatrists in Greece, many of whom were very spiritual people. I know someone who went to a, a psychiatrist in Athens because they had some problems from, the, from America. They just went there and they heard this was a good psychiatrist, they had some issues. They went to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was talking to them and goes, so, and, um, so what's your spiritual life like? Do you go to church? Because a lot of the psychiatrists know that people can be healed through the church. Now, here, we have a bit of a dilemma. Some could believe, but they're Protestant or Catholic or some, some other religion. Some could believe they're Orthodox, but they're confused. And it's very rare to find someone who... In Greece, there's a lot of very spiritual doctors. And that's why all the... Paisus is talking about that. He says, if... And sorry, and that psychiatrist did say to that person from America, he said, um, you know, you should seek help also from a spiritual father. It depends on the type of mental illness someone has. Someone could have a brain damage, someone could have some trauma. There's different reasons. But what Elder Paisus is speaking specifically about is mental illness, which comes from ego. As soon as you hear someone contradict you, someone says something, some relative says something, it's breakdown. The person breaks down. If he is not, he will probably, and if the psychiatrist is not spiritual, he'll probably just prescribe some medications for them. But pills alone, alone, you didn't reject that they can't take pills, but pills alone cannot solve the problems. Spiritual help is also needed to deal appropriately with the, with the particular problem, thus improving their condition and preventing their suffering. I can, I can say that I have seen people that had mental problems and went to doctors and went on pills. I've seen others that didn't go on pills. I've seen others that went on pills and then tried to get off them and couldn't go off them. And the reason that this happens is to do with ego. See, when you're, a lot of people that when they're on pills, they're actually high. Ha, 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 he, he, they're just like they're, they're it's like they're, they're thick. It's not funny, actually. It's, that's how they are. But as soon as they get off them or reduce them, then their thoughts, their negative thoughts start coming and they start getting paranoid. They start having hate for people. They start having their ego. They don't want their faults to be said. They start arguing. What's that got to do with mental illness? What's that got to do that they were abused when they were young? That's a, yes. If someone was sexually abused, emotionally abused when they were young, a woman that could have been raped or someone that went in a war or whatever or saw some, their parent being killed or massacred, those things can create mental illness and that's very difficult, but even they can be healed to the church, but they obviously need some help. However, the majority of, them, of the problems today stem from pride and ego. Okay, so we're up to page 11, which is good, good timing, and um, we will have the, the, the first break the, um, with the sandwiches.
two more little stories I'm going to read and then we'll go on to the explanation of, the, uh, of that verse. Another one from Elder Paisius' life. Uh, Elder Paisius lived the mystery of obedience. He learned its benefits from experience and this is why he sought it. You should know, he would say, that the whole essence the secret of monastic life is in obedience that is cutting off your will, even being obedient to, be, to someone younger if there's no danger of doing him harm. Then the grace comes. When I left the monastery, I really felt a need to be obedient to someone. So Elder Paisius lived in a monastery in Athos. I think that he went to Greece and then somehow I think maybe he was taking care of a place where there was no elder, his elder, as it, as it says later on, lived far away. So he had no one there to be directly obedient to during the day. So let's read that. And it says, When I left the monastery, I really felt a need to be obedient to someone. When I went to Stormion, since Father Seraphim was nine hours away by foot, I took a 12-year-old boy born out of wedlock who everyone neglected and I made him my elder. Uh, the boy was a frequent visitor at the monastery. So there was a boy whose parents weren't married back in those days. It was bad now. It doesn't matter as, as we notice from society, but it does matter as we're going to read later on that one of the biggest problems are children that are born out of ma marriage where the parents aren't married. That's a big problem in America and here as well. That creates a lot of problems for society. Um, so Elder Paisius took care of this boy, this orphan boy, not orphan, this boy that people didn't like because his parents weren't married, which is wrong. You shouldn't do that. I would ask, what do you say, my boy? Should I do this? And I would do whatever he would tell me. Firstly, he says that he would be obedient to even a younger person, if there was no danger of doing that person harm, meaning if the person didn't become proud or lose himself uh, because this monk was being obedient. Now, the elder had such a craving, such a desire for obedience that, as I said, he would even use this boy and say, what do you think we should do today? That's very exceptional. But the reason why I brought this example up is to, to, is to show how much a true Christian has a desire to be uh, obedient. What do you say? Should I go and cut some wood? You want to go cut wood? He would say, are you crazy? So I would cut off my own will and do something else. If you only knew how much good it did me. Of course, people were at a loss because they respected me how about that obeying a child, they would say. So they respected him as a monk, but they couldn't understand why he was listening to this little boy. The boy took heart and developed confidence, and it helped him to become a good man. But I was helped even more by cutting off my own will. Cutting off the will helps in the spiritual life. I think we're just about... coming to a realisation after what we've read, 
of how important obedience is. As I said earlier, how can we understand what St. Paul means, wives submit to your husbands, be obedient to everyone, if we don't even know what's so beneficial about being obedient? Our Holy Father John, another, the last example, our Holy Father John lived in the desert in Egypt during the 4th century. He was called um, the, um, Saint John the Dwarf or Saint John the Short. He must have been a, a dwarf, obviously. Our Holy Father John lived in the desert in Egypt during the 4th century. One day his elder took a dry wooden stick and planted it in the ground. He then said to Saint John... Water it every day until it produces fruit. Now, logically, that's ridiculous. Logically. doesn't matter how much you water a stick, it's not going to produce fruit. The water was so far away that it meant leaving in the evening and not getting back until the next morning. So apart from if the water was close, maybe the person could have watered it, okay, that's what I was told to do. But it was even made harder because this St. John, um, which is why he became a saint, because of his obedience, would have to travel very far distance because in Egypt there was not water everywhere. So he had to travel all night to get back in the morning to water the stick. But John performed this task without complaint and after three years the wood came to life and produced fruit. His elder picked the fruit and carried it to the church the following Sunday, saying to the brethren, come and eat of the fruit of obedience, that the fruit that was produced by the stick is the fruit of obedience, the result of obedience. I have seen so many miracles of people in my own life, but also in, when I deal with people, that those who actually listen... are given so much. And those who don't listen, are tr it's just tragic. And a lot of you will also notice, when you have been obedient, when you have submitted to someone, that things come out better. It doesn't mean that you submit to anyone without discernment. Whether, in the case of Elder Paisus, whether he went out and cut wood or whether they went and done the garden, that's not a sin. He just wanted to cut his will off. And now we are in a better position to study more closely the verse, wives submit to your husband as to the Lord and wives submit to your husbands in everything. The verses. So let's study that. Let's see... Because so far I haven't even explained to you whether that's true or not. Even I did touch on it in the last talk. In the last talk, there was a couple of things which I'll remind you of. Elder Epiphanius, who passed away in 989, he urged sp spouses that came to him and said, you cannot put to a public vote or ask the member of the family or the relatives or friends about something which your husband says, even if this does not seem correct to you. Then he, then he says to the wife, you will voice your opinion, but you will allow him to undertake his responsibilities. Now, that elder seems to be saying that St. Paul's words are literal, meaning 
wives submit to your husbands. Well, let's look at Elder Favelos of Serbia. He passed away in 2003. Often there is no unity or, or, or oneness of mind in our families because wives and mothers transgress the commandment of obedience to their husbands. God wants married people to be of one mind. By disobeying God's commandment, they create an atmosphere of hell in their homes. That sounds like today's marriages, hell on earth. If we could do a survey, like do some statistic like studies of divorces and read all the uh, reasons, I think that a lot of it will have to do with this business, that there wasn't any unity. There were complaints, fights over decisions. And he said here that the reason for the hell on earth in the families is because they are disobeying God's commandment. And what is God's commandment? What's he speaking about? Wives, submit to your husbands. So he also agrees with what St. Paul said, literally. But let's see what St. Tikhon of Zdonsk. Now, he was a Russian saint, very, very popular saint. In 1783, he passed away. He wrote... As the apostle teaches, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So he quotes it, and then he says, then he says in his own words, let her be obedient to you and not you to her. So he's saying, let the wife be obedient to the husband and not the husband to be obedient to the wife. So it would seem that he also is saying that St. Paul's instruction is literal. But let's go to the authority. Let's see what St. John Christum says. Chrysostom's a Greek word, means golden mouth. To some Orthodox, to the embarrassment of some Orthodox, even some Protestants have read St. John Chrysostom. Billy Graham, who's an, is a Protestant, from what I've heard, that he read a lot of the sermons of St. John Chrysostom. And when I've done some research on this topic and I've gone through different books, I also found some books written by Protestants just to look what they say. And because I like, they investigate research. I look for the research, which Orthodox a lot of times don't do any research, but they really look at research and say this, which I'm going to read some later on. And in there, I noticed that the things that they're saying, it sounds like they've taken it straight out of St. John Chrysostom, which is, which is very interesting. Or God enlightens them to come close to the truth. They haven't got the entire truth like the Orthodox have because of the fathers, and they've discarded the Holy Fathers, a lot of them. Or they might read them a little bit here and there. But God even enlightens them to some extent. Let's see what St. John Christum said. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, he quotes. Then he goes on. Because when harmony prevails, the children are raised well, the household is kept in order, and neighbours, friends and relatives praise the result. Great benefits, both for families and countries, for society, insane, are thus produced. So he's saying, wives, submit to your husbands, because that's where 
harmony prevails. And when that happens, then that's the benefit for the family and it's the benefit for society. And when neighbours and friends and relatives see that, they praise it and go, that's a happy family. When it is otherwise, when people aren't doing that, everything is thrown into confusion and turned upside down. Now, St John Chrysostom lived 1,600 years ago when he wrote this. It's as if he's talking about today, but it's the same. There's Like there's a mess in marriage today, there was a mess then. Remember that Christianity had just converted a lot of them. The Roman Empire had become Christian about 60, 70 years before St John Chrysostom did these sermons. And therefore, a lot of the people in the empire were still pagan, and they still carried those pagan ideas. And today we live in a pagan society, which means that's why it's similar when we listen to his words. When the officers of an army are at peace with each other, everything proceeds in an orderly fashion. And when they are not, everything is in disorder. So he compares a marriage to the same as an army, like I did before, like I mentioned uh, a company or whatever. If there's no order, if there's no structure, if you've, you've got to have someone in charge, someone there, someone there, yeah, you can't have everyone to be chiefs. As you know, I used to have pigeons when I was young. I used to have also chickens and roosters. And I, had, I bought them two, two little ones from the market. And I bought quite a few anyway. And two of them turned out to be male because it's very hard to tell. And it was just too much. They'd rip each other apart. All the time fighting, 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 fighting. What are they fighting for? over? Their hens or their harem. So <laughs> that it just was too difficult. I had to get rid of one of them because I ripped them up. Once I got rid of the other one, then after that, then I became the victim. Because every time I'd go in the backyard, it would come from behind and try to stick its, those things in the back of you uh, because that's it, the king of the um, backyard. So it's very interesting that there's order. There's one rooster, one king or czar, one prime minister, one president, one CEO, one office manager, one teacher in a school. When, for the class, when you can't have two teachers, it's because they'll play off each other, the kids. One principle. One head of the family. And St John Chrysostom says, when we have order, just like in the army, we've got the general, we've got that, we've got that, there's order, people are obedient to who, there's a hierarchy, and then he says, when that happens, then... When the, when the officers of an army are at peace with each other, everyone knows their position, not fighting with each other, like a lot of marriages today, everything proceeds in an orderly fashion, and when they are not, everything is in disorder. It is the same here, says St John Chrysostom. For the sake of harmony, then St Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. St Paul means that even if the wife does not obey for her husband's sake, she must do so primarily for the Lord's sake. Meaning, even if the wife doesn't feel that she wants to be obedient to her husband, whether because 
he's off or whether because she's a feminist or whether whatever, whatever. If she's an Orthodox Christian, then she has to understand that this is a commandment and therefore, even if you're not being obedient to him because you don't respect him or whatever, then be obedient because God has a, as the commandment as that is the structure of the marriage. That's, that's how it is. When you give in to your husband, in other words, when you submit to your husband, consider that you are obeying him as part of your service to the Lord. In other words, that's part of your um, following God's commandments. That's part of your service to God. But no, today it's all different. People think that uh, service to God is when we do some prayers, go to church, um, do some fasting. And we, yes, that's the, those things are important. But we leave out something which is also important, which is also part of the commandments. Wives, submit to your husbands, he's saying. If he who resists the authorities, governments in other words, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, how much more severely will God judge someone who resists not an external authority, but that of her own husband, which God has willed from the beginning. In Romans chapter 13, line 2, St. Paul says, he who resists the authorities, whether even if they're pagan, as long as it's not contradictory to our faith, the church always said that you will be obedient to those who are ruling at that time. So the emperors were ruling and therefore St Paul was saying we must submit to the authorities that exist. And he says, St Paul says, he who resists the authorities, the governments, resists what God has appointed because if they've got power, whether they're communist or whether they were Turks or whatever at that time, the church always said that God has allowed them to be on top of us because of our sins or whatever reason, and therefore we must submit to them as long as they are not telling us to do something which is against our faith. And those, St. Paul says, who don't do that are deserving of punishment. St. John Chrysostom said, but if you're deserving of punishment for not listening to the external authorities, like a king or whatever, how much more does a woman deserve punishment, he's saying, if she is not uh, obedient to her husband, does not submit to her husband, and then he ends off with, which God has willed from the beginning. And he actually adds that at the end, that it's God's will, St. John Christum says. Now, some of you might say, that's too much, I'm not interested, and that's Okay. You're free. You don't have to submit. That's your business. But you're also denying your orthodox faith because it's quite obvious after what I'm read, I'm going to read more, but St. John Chrysostom said clearly that God has willed this from the beginning. So it's no longer what I said in the beginning that this is a line which could mean if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. It has another meaning. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We don't pluck our eyes out. 
that means something else. It means that if someone close to you or something close to you is causing you to sin, you cut that off, whether it's money or whether it's a person that you're doing sin with or whether it's even your own husband who could be trying to force you to deny your faith. So John Christum gives permission for a woman in that case to leave him, if he's that. And that's after, of course, some struggles trying to preserve the marriage. So that's what it means. Not if you look at something with your eye and you sin, then you go and pluck it out. So but, but in this case, he's saying that's what it means. A woman is to submit, a wife submit to a husband. Blind obedience. Now, blind obedience is an expression that's used in monasticism, which is called tiflipakui, which means obedience blind, where you don't think about what's being said, you just do. And that might sound like a cult, because a lot of those people that were part of cults had blind obedience. But if you look at the difference between a monastic being obedient to their abbot or spiritual father, where there's a freedom in them, and they don't look like robots, compared to those who are obedient in a cult, where they look like computers, like, like robots. They're out of it. They're depressed. That's completely different to where Elder Porfirios and Elder Paisios and Elder Joseph all said at the same time, our obedience was because we had love for our spiritual father. And obedience is not coerced. In these cults, they're, they're, a lot of them are coerced. When they want to try and leave, they can't leave. And they look like zombies. Even though there's no such thing as zombies, but they come the closest to it. Therefore, are wives meant to have blind obedience? To do whatever their husband says? St. Paul says, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, that could be a meaning of, well, blind obedience. I'm blind. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to think about what's being said. I'm just going to do it like a dodo. I'm just going to do as I'm told because that's what the monastics do. But the monastics, if they're being obedient, they're being obedient to someone who's already been proven to be a person with discernment, holy, full of love, full of the grace of God, Yes, of course, if you know that, of course you're going to be obedient. But if your husband, for example, spends most of his time playing computer games or looking at pornography or whatever else, it's a bit difficult to actually say, I'm going to have blind obedience. Because he hasn't proven himself. Now, Father Alexei Young... Now, he was a priest in the Russian Orthodox Church abroad. Uh, He was very much connected with Father Seraphim Rose, and he was a convert. He wrote many things I like when I first came to the church. I liked reading a lot of his material. When I went to America, at that time, he he was a parish priest of All Saints of Russia, I think, in Denver, which I I visited and um, had the privilege of meeting him. He was an ex-teacher, could be biased, but... I always like uh, when writings are simple, and his writings are simple. I hope what I'm telling you is simple as well. 
because I, I, I really can't stand complicated things. I don't like those things. So let's go on to see what Father Alexi Young says. What happens if a husband doesn't take his responsibilities seriously or makes mistakes in his decisions? Must he also be obeyed? What is the answer? Let's have a look. So really, I'm not interested really in his opinion. I like when, which is, I hope that you're not interested in my opinion. As you notice, I try to use what the fathers say, not my opinion. I might slip sometimes, might, might say something, perhaps. But my emphasis is to tell you what the church teaches, what the fathers say, not what I believe. Now, Father Lexi Young is going to answer an important question. Should the woman be obedient in everything, the wife? Should she have blind obedience? And he answers as follows. According to St. Nicodemus the Athenite, the answer is no. Women must obey what is good and kind and not what is sinful. If a woman obeys what is contrary to God's commandments, she is sinning. A wife's first obedience is always to God, but in all other things she must submit to her husband, although sometimes with groaning. Now, there are two types of things a husband can give. He can say something which is not sinful, but he, that's, that's what he wants. For example, he might say, like the example... I want to go to the mountain. The other one says, I want to go to the beach, etc. So one's got to have to give in. Whether you go to the mountain or to the... When we say to the beach, of course, we don't mean where everyone's half undressed. We mean somewhere quiet or something like that. That's not sinful. If a husband is demanding from his wife sexual things that are against the canons of the church, the woman is to say, no... And some women say, oh, but he'll leave me. He'll leave. Once you start giving in to those things, he'll leave you anyway. Because that's, then after that, they go into more and more and they start going out with others. That's abominable. You don't do things which are unnatural, which we've already covered, and we will be covering, God willing, in, if I finish this one, in the next talk about more about those things. So then there might be something which isn't sinful but is stupid, where it could be something which is, might have disastrous consequences. Now, that's a difficult situation where the husband might say, I think we should leave, sell our house and go buy something big. And the wife says, how are we going to do that when... We can't even afford the one that we're in, which is smaller. How are you going to go and buy a bigger one? He goes, no, I want, I want that. Now, that's a problem because it's not a, it's not an, a command. You're not breaking a commandment to buy a bigger house, just like you're not breaking a commandment to go to the beach where it's a quiet place or to the mountains. See, they're neutral. But in the case of the house, that can cause a disaster because then the, the, the family could end up in the street. That's a problem. And let's see what he says here. If a woman obeys what is contrary to God's commandments, she's sinning. So her first obedience is always to God. But in all other things she must submit to her husband, although sometimes with groaning. It is not easy, but if wives trust that God will not allow their husbands to mislead or mistreat them or in any way endanger their salvation, 
there is already a firm spiritual foundation to the relationship. Now, in the previous talks, which a lot of you have missed, we spoke about, for example, what happens if one of the spouses is committing adultery, what happens if the marriage is on the rocks. And I said that, uh, in that back in those talks that, I mean, I read from the Holy Elders, that people don't even pray about it. Now, I've seen situations where the husband is, is about to make the most stupid decision and, I can, and, I, and he doesn't even listen to me. And, I, and they, don't, they don't listen. That, that's it. It's, they become like pig-headed. I remember an occasion where this fellow, he had, a, he had a, made a decision that he wanted to do, do some... He wanted to make an, uh, some type of new rumpus room or something at the back of the house, which is not, not, not even necessary. But anyway, he wanted the rumpus room or some extension to, to the house, just add on to the house, not in the backyard, in the house. And he rings me up and I said to him, that's not a very good idea. Because one, uh, it's going to cause a lot of disruption to your family. Your wife's weak at this moment, mentally. Uh, you won't be there to supervise the workers and you can't expect, it's very difficult for a woman to sit there with these big monster men and deal with them. Coming in and out to use the toilet, that, it's very difficult for a lot of people. And I said to him as well, I said, also, there's going to be a lot of danger because there's going to be a lot of building material and that's going to cause danger for the children. He goes, no, no, but now's the opportunity because the builder said that he's got time and he can do it now. So what's the hurry? No, he's going to do it now. I go, well, where's the plans? What are plans? So he was going to start a project without even any plans. I said, what's the builder going to do? Where's he going to go? What's he going to make? Is he making a cellar? He's making that. What, what, what is he making? What is he doing? Then I spoke to the wife, and lo and behold, the wife said to me, without knowing what I said to the husband, because I told him that I don't want to be there with the men. I told him that it's going to be dangerous. I told, she said exactly what I said. And even though this buffhead could not understand that even his own wife said exactly what I said, he couldn't sit and say, oh, could this be maybe... Is this God trying to tell me something? No, because it's like a bull. When they see red, like in Spain, that's it. Is that's that's the mission I've got to build. Doesn't matter if it causes my wife to have a breakdown. Doesn't matter if my children get hurt. Doesn't matter. So I said to the wife that. The only, and, and from my own experience I know, that the only way now what to do is you can't rebel because at the end it's going to cause a big problem because it could cause a divorce. So I said to the woman, pray for him. Do an akathist. Ask God to enlighten him. And I said, you do that. We'll do that as well. But you have to do it as well. You got to, don't just ask us to do it. You've got to do it as well. And then it's... Yeah. And that's what happened. And after that, the bull calmed down. And he realised that he was wrong. 
See, prayer. A lot of times people don't do that. Just fight, fight, rebel, rebel. Sometimes it's just better for a woman just to be quiet, go in her room, get the prayer rope, do some prostrations, do some prayer. God, please, please, please. You think God's not going to listen to that? And that if you say, oh, that sounds too much to believe, that's because you've never, you're not leading a spiritual life. I see that every day. And if at the end he still wants to go ahead, then, um, as I said, sometimes you just have to um, submit. And if something happens where he makes a mistake, as Elder Epiphanius said in the last talk, he said then if he hits his head, he'll wake up and he said, maybe I should have listened to my wife. So the second time around, it won't happen. Now, if something's absolutely dangerous where you're in the car and he's drunk and he says, you've got to be a bit and get in the car with the children, you say no. And some people say, oh, but he'll get aggressive, he might do this. No, you do what's good. If you're doing that for you, the sake of your children, God will protect you. Nothing will happen. Just don't get in the car. See, you've got to have discernment. So let's go on here. If a husband says something sinful that is harmful for the home, a sensible wife will find a way, says Father Lexi Young, will find a way to keep the peace of the home without criticising her husband's judgement or teaching him a lesson, something the Apostle Paul forbids. Quote, St Paul says, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man but to be in silence. And some people don't understand what that means. It means a woman cannot take over the position of the head. That's what it means. And it says, to, but to be in silence. But we hear in other places where St Gregory the Theologian in the last talk said that a woman can use her softness and her kindness and her gentleness. And, she said, and he said that she can even tame the husband who a lot of times is like a lion. He actually uses those words. So where's the silence? So sometimes, yes, there is silence, but in, what it means there more is the woman can't get on top and she can't put him down, but she can express it. So I can say, for example, I can say about today, who made the sandwiches, say Fatini made the sandwiches, and I could say in two ways. I can say, look, that, those sandwich, that was um, tuna sandwiches were absolutely off, right? That, that is critical, hurting, upsetting. Or I can say, uh, you know the tuna ones, how did you make them, this and that, what did you think of it? Did you ask other people, whatever, and then get around a nice way. That's what a woman can do as well in a marriage. She doesn't have to um, try to get on top of the head of the man. Kindness and gentleness are the best means to achieve this. It is easier to win something with a smile than with the sword, meaning with fighting and screaming. And that's what the woman's been given by God. A woman can take a man down and a woman can bring a man up. Behind every great man is a great woman because of their influence. Women are very powerful. Samson, as you know, 
Delilah, I think it was Delilah, came up to him. What's the, what's the secret? What's, where do you get your strength from? And from the sensuality and from her way of her, her, um, her soft voice or husky voice or whatever she had, and she asked him that, and then he softened, 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 and then he said, it's my hair. And other, other people like that. So women are quite powerful for good and for bad. Now, for the husband, now we're finished the one about the church's teaching A. I think, with God's help, we've come to the, we've come to the point now where we can understand that it's clear-cut what the church teaches about women obedient to husbands and how that is to occur and when shouldn't it occur and things like that. Now we come to part B, which is also electric, which causes like electrocution for the feminist, which is for the husband is the head of the wife. Even I touched on it already. That's uh, Ephesians 5:23 and 25. There's two quotes. I'll read them to you. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the next section. Now, questions that can be asked. Why did God choose the man to be the head of the wife instead of the other way around? Another question. Does this mean that the husband is superior to his wife? If he's the head, it must be superior. Because we're going to hear now that St. Paul says that the marriage is like the man is the head, like, like he compares it to a, a human, like to a body, to a, a person. The head and the body. The man is the head and the woman is the body. So they're saying, does that mean that the head is superior to the body? Does that mean that the man is superior to the wife? Well, can a body exist without a head? Or can the head exist without a body? So the two make the one because the two shall become one flesh, as Christ said. So it's not a marriage. You need a head and a body. The feminists like to make us believe that you can have two heads, but no body. In mythology, in Greek mythology maybe, or some stupid science fiction program where there's a two-headed monster there with no body, maybe those things can exist. But in reality, you can't have an organism of just two heads. Now, the next question is, does it mean that women are to be men's servants or slaves? Why can't there be two heads in a family, both the husband and the wife? I already mentioned that. If the husband is the head, wouldn't, it be considered a, wouldn't the wife be considered a loser? And would such a situation be considered one of inequality? If one's the head and one's the body, one's, that doesn't mean that that's inequality. And we know today everything's equality. In the modern times in which we live, shouldn't we be striving for equality? Continual, that's this thing. That's the people chanting continually equality. How can there be love when the husband is superior in position, some will say? So then we go on and say, how can we understand what St Paul means by the husband is the head of the wife and husbands love your wives if we don't understand the, teachers, the church's teaching on inequality? That's, we're going to study that. That's one prerequisite we're going to do today. And the other one is Christ's words, whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. 
That needs to be explained as well. And remember, St. Paul's words are Christ's words. In, the, in other words, the verses, for the husband is the head of the wife and as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour, and the other verse, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, are from God. We've already established that. The problem is, does that mean what we're reading? Is it the same example with the hand cut off? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Maybe this means something, there's something deeper in there. Not that man is the head, but it's some other meaning. Because not all that we read in the Bible is literal. The kingdom of heaven is like a tree or all these things where the birds came in. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is, but, God, but Christ used these examples to help explain what the kingdom of heaven is. Maybe this has got some inner meaning, some deeper meaning. So let's go through first. Let's look at the prerequisites for this part B about inequality. And I'm going to read St. Nikolai. And some of you will be quite surprised of what St. Nikolai writes. And after that, I'm going to read Elder Joseph, what he says about inequality. And St. Gregory the Theologian and some other saints... St. Nikolai is a Serbian saint who passed away, I think, in the 50s. And he is called the Serbian Chrysostom, like St. Tikhon of Zadonks is called the Russian Chrysostom, meaning that they preached and helped people with their everyday lives. St. Nikolai writes, God creates inequality. Now, even just that causes our heads to spin around because what does that mean? How can God create inequality? Inequality is bad. So, God creates inequality, says St. Nikolai. Men grumble at it. In other words, people complain about inequality. Are men wiser than God? When God creates inequality, it means that inequality is wiser and better than equality. See what I'm saying? That when we don't know much and all we listen to is the news, what's on the internet, the newspapers, we don't understand and we think, okay, you hear it every day, equality, 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 but we don't understand the real... what's behind that? Now, some of you might think, but is inequality good? Yes, no, we'll see. We'll see what's how St. Nicola explains it. He says God does create inequality because that's better for us. It's wiser and better than equality. God creates inequality for man's good, but men, meaning people, cannot see the good in their inequality. God creates inequality because of the beauty of inequality, but men can see no beauty in it. God creates inequality out of love, but man can see no love in it. Now, let me explain something. When you hear something that you don't agree with or you get terrorised or whatever because it doesn't compute with what you've learned, you mustn't allow that reaction to take you over and become biased. A saint is speaking. There must be something behind it. If we just have patience, read on, 
with your heart open. I read a lot of things and a lot of times I, I don't understand what I'm reading. But I try not to rebel. Don't rebel. If you rebel, you become blind. If you become blind, then you will fall into a hole. Don't rebel. Listen to what's been said. Adam and Eve gave themselves into Satan's power in order to become equal with God. Cain slew his brother Abel because their sacrifices were not equally righteous in God's sight. Adam and Eve could, or Eve first and then Adam, could not accept that they were not equal to God. They couldn't accept that God was higher than them. What did they want? They wanted equality. Cain could not accept that his sacrifice was not the same as his brother's sacrifice. And what happened? We know what happened. From his jealousy, he killed his brother because of his jealousy. What did he want? He wanted God to accept both sacrifices equally, but God did not accept both equally. He accepted the, the, the one brother's uh, sacrifice more than the other. Before then, God created inequality and it's still with us. Now, this is a beautiful thing. It says, before then, God created inequality. Before when? So what did, what did, what did St. Nicola just speak about? Adam and Eve and uh, the, um, the, sl the slain of uh, Cain slew his brother Abel, which was in the, uh, earlier on in the history of mankind. Now, what does St. Nicolai mean before that? Before what? Before Adam and Eve? There were no humans before Adam and Eve. So then how can he say... Before then, God created inequality. Who knows? The angels. He says here, before then we say, because God created the angels, unequal. There are orders. There's higher angels and lower angels. The lower are obedient to the, the, to the other, to the ones higher. The higher, then the next one is obedient, etc., etc. So God, even before the creation of the earth and mankind, didn't create even heaven with equality. It is God's desire that men be unequal in externals. That is, riches, power, status, learning, position and so forth. But he does not recommend any sort of comp competitiveness in this. So, where we talk about God creating inequality, it means he created rich, poor, sick, healthy, educated, uneducated, powerful, less powerful. And St. Nicholas saying this is useful. This is the thing today. This is the, the madness that they, like communism, that Lenin and the other idiots up there, they actually said that they're going to create something which is going to be good for the, for the workers. Everyone's going to be the same. But how's everyone the same when they're drinking champagne and the people, it was, it was worse under communism than what it was where they were complaining under the Tsar. But they thought they're going to have equality. 
Now, the women, the feminists in the beginning, talked about equality. No, we're equal to men, we're equal to men. But what do we see now? They don't believe that. They believe that they're superior to men. So therefore, in a way, they talked about equality, but now they actually make fun and put down men, and they say that we are superior. That's where this, this thing about um, let's have equality in education, for example. Everyone has a right to be educated. But to think that everyone's going to, like they say in America, everyone has to have a college degree. So we're going to have college degrees so we can work at Woolworth Supermarket. There are people who will never get a college degree. That's, that's the thing. We can try. You can have programs to help those who are slower. But there always will be people who aren't as intelligent. There will always be that situation. And to, like they say now, the other government, they say, oh, we want all the children to have a HSC, a higher school certificate a year 12 certificate. But I know I'm a teacher and I've got people that still teach. Those, a lot of those students that are going on and doing the HSC, the high school certificate, a lot of them were in the lower classes. Some of them are what's called slow learners or using the technical term. Some of them are even called IM. IM means intellectually mild. And they're forcing those children who still can't add and write to do the higher school certificate, but they, of course they say they don't have to do the one which goes towards university. They do a one which is a lesser one, but they still get a paper saying they've done year 12, even though they still can't add and they can't write. And a lot of them can't read. But they've got the HSC. Isn't that false? Look, I've got the HSC, but I still can't write. And that makes a person have a false idea. So this is wrong. The same with the sickness. We're going to have a world where there'll be no sick. Really. I think, I think society has advanced in science so much, and yet I think people are very sick. Cancer, they can't do much about it. AIDS, this, that. Sometimes they discover a little treatment, and then all of a sudden there's another disease. Now they've got this other, all these newer ones coming out. Even the, bac the bacteria, all those, all those infections in the hospitals, they can't control them. See, and and not, people are unaware that hundreds of thousands that go to hospitals die, not from what they've got, but from infections. They can't even control inf infections. A world that's everyone's equal, everyone's educated. So who's going to collect the garbage? I'm not saying that as, a, as putting those people down, because they're not to put down. They are, they are working, they're working for their family. It's a, that's what they want to do. Who's going to do that? Who's going to pack the shelves at the supermarkets? Who's going to do other, these other jobs? And that's why it's... it's I tell you, it's so uh, put down when we give these children false hope that they're going to go and do these big high school certificates and at the end... They've got this high school, year 12, they've got this year 12 certificate and they have to go and work in something with menial labour. 
But because, because, and that's why they've got this thing, oh, yeah, we've got to start the children early, four and a half, four years old. I've got to start teaching them how to read and write and do arithmetic at four years old. Even though there's European countries like Finland, they um, start the children on academic studies at eight because they found that the earlier you teach the kids, the worse they become. That's why Russia, Greece, all these countries, it was always seven. But Finland actually started at bed and go, seven, they accept children at seven, structured play, and then eight, they start getting... And I've noticed that because I've been involved in a lot of people that homeschool, and you notice that until around eight, they're not really that ready. There might be some exceptions, but in general, they're not ready. And they get disturbed. Of course, there are those who say um, um, abuse... Abuse of children, if you smack them or hit them or whatever, that's abuse, abuse, abuse. But the, I've dealt with a lot of people as adults who open up and they don't really talk about being smacked or whatever much at all, if, if at all. They get, they, but the one thing they do talk about is when they were taken to school at four, four and a half and left there, and the pain and the psychological, and a lot of them, as the as on 60 Minutes lately, this principal said, who was a principal for many years, retired, and he said, those children who start early, he goes, um, they are so affected that they never catch up. They always will be uh, intimidated, very, very much uh, difficult to learn and to adjust because it's too young. But that's not child abuse. Letting children watch television and watching Harry Potter or watching all these other movies... That's not child abuse. But if you smack your why? Because God in the Bible, it says that at times you do have to give a bit of a, a smack depending on the child. But they, they go against anything which is from God. And whatever's not from God, they fall. Early education and that the children um, watch television early, doesn't matter. There's nothing. There's nowhere has any parent been prosecuted for showing their children inappropriate material which is beyond them and become disturbed and have nightmares for the rest of their life, a lot of them, because they saw something when they were young. <laughs> that's just too much, isn't it? You know, that's the world of equality. Rich and poor are not in the world, says said Nikolai, by chance, but by God's most wise providence. God would be able in the twinkling of an eye to make all men equal in wealth. But that would be absolutely foolish. God does not want everyone to have the same financial thing there, to be um, all with the same amount of money. In that case, men would become totally independent of one another. What would then be, who then would be saved? How could anyone be saved? For men are saved through their dependence on one another. For men are saved through their dependence on one another. The rich depend on the poor. The poor depend on the rich. The learned depend on the ignorant, those who don't know much. And the ignorant depend on the learned. The healthy depend on the sick, and the sick depend on the healthy. All is interwoven like a carpet of many colours. A world of a single colour would blind all eyes. He's saying like a carpet, if, it's, if the world was one colour, in other words, equal, that would 
cause blindness. It just doesn't even make any sense. But no, just like there are many colours in the world, there are also many different levels of people. Educated, uneducated. Weak, strong. Powerful, less powerful. You're never going to get rid of that. And Elder Joseph also speaks about inequality. He, he says the following. Who has, who has conquered the devil? He who knows his own weaknesses, passions and shortcomings. And you might say, how does that start off? In other words, if a person doesn't know himself, then he's under the control of demons. The more a person knows his own weakness, passions, the closer they come to God. Whoever is afraid of knowing himself remains far from knowledge and he doesn't love anything else except seeing faults in others and judging them. Like I said about those people on the medication a lot of time. A lot of times those people, they don't look at their own faults. They're scared to see themselves and they all the time look at others. That's how you know if we're progressed spiritually. Do we look at others' faults or do we look at our own? The saints that were progressed didn't look at the faults of others. Now, we aren't like that. That's why at times we look at other, one, other people's faults and we judge them and we, we judge our own. That's okay as long as we're struggling and we know that when we do look at others, it's wrong. But when you're at the level where you never look at your own faults but only the others, then that means it's a pretty bad situation. He, he doesn't see gifts in other people, a person like that, but only shortcomings. And he doesn't see his own shortcomings, but only his gifts. So a person who's spiritually blind only looks at their own good points, their own positive, and look at everyone else's faults, but never their own. This is truly the sickness, he calls it a sickness, that plagues us men of the 20th century, when he wrote it. We fail to recognise one another's gifts. One person may lack many things, but many people together have everything. This is why God doesn't want equality. He wants people to have these different levels so that we can depend on each other. A life where everyone is equal will be boring, unbearable. This is truly the sickness that plagues us men of the 20th century. One person may lack many things, but many people together have everything. What one person lacks, another person has. If we acknowledge this, we would have a great deal of humility because God, who adorned men in many ways and showed inequality in all of his creations, is honoured and glorified. Not as the unbelievers say, who work hard to, to bring equality by overturning the divine creation, God made all things in wisdom. In other words, the unbelievers, those who are rebelling against God, are the ones who are saying a world that everyone's not equal is not a world and we should strive for equality. He says here, God made all things in wisdom. So St. Nikolai and Elder Joseph both say the following, that God created inequality. 
Those things, of, that's just like those, um, some of those science fiction movies, which unfortunately I was subjected to when I was younger, and just these things where everyone's the same age or everyone's got the same intelligence or everyone, it's like these, oh, so I find that sickening. God, Christ, when he came to earth and taught, he never made any suggestions to make the world e have, uh, to be equal with, the, with, with respect to power. He didn't, he didn't even say that Caesar shouldn't even be there. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. He never tried to say we have to find a solution for the sick. He healed those, he helped those, and he told others to help. But he never said, let's all move towards a world where there's no sick, where there's no uneducated, where there's no powerful, everyone's the same. St. Gregory the theologian wrote, forget about the silliness of equality among the sexes that some of your contemporaries preach and try to understand the obligations of marriage. St. Gregory the theologian, I think, again, was 5th century I'm not sure. Anyway, around there. It was many, many years ago. 1,600 years ago. And even in his times, as I said, there was this thing about equality of sexes. And he says, that does not... God did not create men and women the same. Men have their characteristics. Women have their characteristics. I call it like, using mathematical terms, like complementary angles. Or supplementary angles. Do you know what that means? Two angles that add up to 90 are called complementary angles. Two angles that add up to 180 are called supplementary angles. As long as they have a common arm and a vertex, the same vertex. What does that mean? It means that together the angles become 90 or together the angles become 180. Together. And they have a common arm. That's the same as a man and a woman. Arm in arm. Arm in arm. Become one. Become one, but each one together become one. Not just two separate people or two in the sense of equal where they are exactly the same. What kind of marriage is that? What a bore would that be? Even on 60 Minutes the other night, the, the big um, sex therapist there, woman there, Bettina Aunt, whatever her name, I think her name is, she was talking about this thing that we shouldn't even... Uh, be um, calling children boys and girls. That's the thing that they're going in America now. So when you're at the school, you can say, oh, come on, little penguins, or some other name that they... <laughs> That's what they're saying. And it's trying to come here too because it's unfair on those who are transgender, who are in, the, in between. And then this woman who's a sex therapist, and as I said, I don't believe that, but on this part, she's correct. And she said that... Um, she says, I'm, boys are different. In the 60s, we tried that experiment. We tried to give boys dolls and tried to give girls trucks and we tried to do this and do that. We tried to not steer them towards being different. And what happened was that the girls would go to the next-door neighbour and steal their dolls and the boys would try and find a stick or something and pretend it was a gun or whatever. You, and she says, they are different. She says, you can't change that. And she herself said, as a woman, 
I like the men, I, I, I am attracted to men because they are different to women. And women are attracted to men because they're different. And together they become one. That's ridiculous things, anyway. Now, St. John Chrysostom, let's go now to the authority on this topic. Not that the others aren't authority, but we will see that what they said is what St. John Chrysostom says. God did not, on the one hand, fashion woman independently from man, otherwise man would think of her as essentially different from himself. Nor did he enable women to bear children without a man, even though they're trying to do that now, of course. But if this were the case, she would be self-sufficient. If a woman could bear children on her own, without a man, then she would become completely independent, self-sufficient, which is what they're moving. It's so unnatural that they go and purchase sperm from whatever on the internet, get it sent over, and they impregnate themselves because they have such a mania that they don't want a man in their lives. That's, that's, that's the extreme of feminism. And we heard about all that in the last talk. Instead, just as the branches of a tree proceed from a single trunk, he made the one man, Adam, to be the origin of all mankind, both male and female, and made it impossible for men and women to be self-sufficient, that they don't need each other. And that's St John Chrysostom. In other words, this brainwashing of the equality is wrong. Equality in certain things. Why should women, if they do the same job as the men, not get the same pay? That's good. Why shouldn't women be allowed to vote? That's okay. There's a lot of good things, but the way it's gone in the last 30, 40 years, it's gone out of hand, and that's in the, and that's in the last talk. Now we have heard about inequality, equality. There's one more prerequisite that's necessary before we can go on to understand man is the head. And the second thing is the, the teaching of Christ, the first shall be last of all and servant of all. So... John chapter 15, lines 12 and 13, it says there, this is my commandment, Christ says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. All, all of you have heard that, but we pass it by. What's Christ saying there? You must lay down your life for, for one another as I shall do for you soon meaning that he was, will die on the cross. No greater love has someone than to give up his life for someone else. Now, that does not just mean death, because some of you might think that just means for me to die for someone. No. A person can still be alive, not die, and give up their life for someone else. For example, a woman's pregnant, she finds out that there's a possibility that her child might have Down syndrome. That woman knows that if she gives birth to that child, that that means that her life, using worldly terms, is finished in one sense. Using worldly terms. Finished for worldly people. Or a man whose wife got, got sick. And in that marriage book, 
the priest there uses the example of Paul McCartney, which, anyway, was, uh, was, it's interesting that he used it because it's embarrassing, that Paul McCartney, when his wife, won, I think his first one, when she was, she was very sick, and, no, no, sorry, before she got sick, I can't remember the example, I think it was that he preferred to be with his wife. Even when he was doing his concerts, whatever he did, he always would come back because he wanted to be with his wife. He had so much love for his wife. His wife was first. And I think when she got sick, I think he took care of and things like that, right to her deathbed. So he gave up his life for her. Like a, man, like a woman or a man whose spouse is mentally ill. That's difficult to take care of someone who's mentally ill. That's why a lot of people say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm going. I've got a life to lead. Or a woman who becomes unexpectedly pregnant. And she goes, but I've got, I've got a life to do. And even now, that's not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give up my freedom of studying or travelling for, for a baby. So what does that mean? No greater love is someone who gives up their life for someone else. Does that mean they don't have love? I would have to say yes. Now, Mark, chapter 10, line 35 to 45, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, to Christ, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your, in your glory. Because the, the, the apostles at that time thought that Christ was the Messiah and the Jews in those days, believe that the Messiah was someone who's going to crush the Roman Empire and set up the Jewish kingdom again because they were suppressed by the Romans. So that was their mentality. So they said, when you become king, when the Jews take over again and we get back our kingdom, let, we, let us sit one on your left and one on your right. And then he says he... But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, meaning the unbelievers, the pagans, uh, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, some of you are starting to maybe get to what I'm trying to say. Because we say, it says there, the man is the head. And people, the ones that always cry about equality, 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 and, cry, and we see that that was also in the time of the apostles where they were seeking glory and this power and positions and authority. And Christ said uh, to them that um, you want to be first. To be first means you're going to be the slave of everyone. What does that mean? Let's have a look. Blessed Theophilus explains, he interprets this and says, Christ heals by showing them that to grasp for honours and to desire the chief place is the behaviour of Gentiles. Christ's saying unbelievers do that. Unbelievers are always looking for glory and position. Does that mean that someone can't strive towards becoming the Prime Minister? 
That does not mean that. But that's isn't that what it says here? No. But these people that are striving for that are not striving for the benefit of others. They're striving for glory, for vainglory, for power. Like someone that becomes a, um, a priest. They become a priest so people can kiss their hand. How long are they going to last? How long is that thing going to last in, a, in, in, in the world? And there are some who do get ordained for that reason. That's for sure. But it doesn't take long for them to crumble and deteriorate and become quite worldly and off. Because to become a priest does not mean to get glory. It means to be a slave. But we'll see that. For the Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelievers, for the Gentile princes lorded over others. Lorded means that they flaunt their authority. They show off their authority. I'm the king. I'm the boss. I'm this. I'm that. But this is not so with my disciples, he says. Instead, let him who would be great serve all the others. For the mark of a great soul is to endure all things and to serve everyone. Even as a teacher, I remember, people become teachers. Oh, they're going to call me sir, they're going to call me miss, they've got this, they stand up, they've got, their, they've, got, they've got authority. But if you are going to school so that someone can call you sir or me and have this authority so you can, be, so you can feel better about yourself, that's not going to last long because the kids will pick that up and they'll eat you alive. The only teachers who survive are the teachers who are dedicated, who give themselves in all ways for their kids. When I would walk into a school, it was a new school, it was very difficult because I'm new, so they don't know who I am. And what they would try to do is be disrespectful, they wouldn't listen, etc. So I had to use discipline in the beginning, but at the same time as using discipline, if I just use discipline, if you just keep them in, or detentions, whatever, they're going to resent you. They're going to hate you. But when, you, when they see that you're dedicating your lunch times to helping them, when they see your lessons are prepared, when they see that when you, when you give them a test, it's marked the very next day instead of taking three months, like most teachers do, when they see that, when they see that dedicated, when they see the amount of work, they have respect. Then after that, their authority reduces. You don't have to use much because they just respect you and they will do it because they have respect, because they can see that you're there. And to do that, basically you're a slave. And I'm not saying this as a brag, I'm just telling you an example. Um... In the schools, many of the teachers that were in my staff room at lunchtime would have their coffee, would have their lunch, sit around. But I wouldn't do that. I used to be out there. I used to help, whatever, do this, talk to the kids, do what I have to do. They, of course, looked down at me and said, what an idiot. But the difference is 
that when you would go past their rooms, apart that you saw things flying around, <laughs> it would always be, be quiet, be quiet, stop it, stop that, sit down, don't do that, stop speaking, listen here, do your work, don't speak, pay attention. I said to myself, I'd rather miss out on my sandwich than to have that. Now, in, in my case, because I showed the dedication, when people would come past my room, they saw me at the front and then, in a rude way, they would come to the door, to the window, to look over because they couldn't see inside. Do you know why they did that? Because they couldn't hear anything. They thought that I was teaching to myself. They thought I was crazy. <laughs> I was on the board doing things on my own, but at, the, but at the end they looked in and the kids were perfect. Why? Because they saw I was dedicated. And that's the thing. But to be dedicated means that I spat blood doing work. And some of you teachers, you know what I mean. So the, the mark of a great soul is to endure all things and to serve everyone. The example of this is near at hand. For the Son of Man himself did not come to be served, but to serve. And what is even greater, he came to give himself as a ransom for many. For what could be greater and more marvellous than a person who not only serves but who even dies for the sake of the one he serves. That's why we read in the Bible, we see there that it said that Christ, he wouldn't eat a lot of times. He was still human. And he wouldn't eat because I haven't got time to eat. I've got to serve. I'm speaking to people. I'm preaching. I'm saving souls. And as we read in there that it was so many people and so much work that he was doing that he never had time to sleep a lot of times and he was all dedicated to it. We read St. John of Kronstadt, the life of St. John of Kronstadt, where the, the Russian saint who died just before the revolution, and he was, he only slept, I think, three hours a day. The ascetics, like Elder Joseph, they only slept a few hours a day too. So what are they doing? No one came to their place, only a couple maybe, but he didn't allow anyone. So who's he serving? He's praying for the whole world. They felt compelled. It wasn't just for their own personal union with God, but they felt that they had to pray continually at all times for the, for the world. Knowing how tyrannical is the pride of status, blessed Theophilus says, those who seek high positions, and that a severe rebuke is necessary, he cuts them down by giving them over to the fate of the Gentiles and infidels if they would be vainglorious. See, not that it's bad to seek positions. But if you're doing it for vainglory to show off, then he, Christ calls those people pagans. So he shames them by saying, quote, other men are renowned as princes and rulers and lust for high position is a passion of the Gentiles. But my disciples are made honourable by their humility, so that he who would be great ought to serve the most inferior in rank. This is the mark of extreme humility. I myself, like Christ is speaking, 
I myself show this. I am the prince and king of all those who dwell in the heavens, who humbled myself to minister to you for your salvation. And I am your servant to the extent that I even give my life as a ransom for many, that is, for all people. And if you notice, Christ was not served. He served. He wasn't served. Now, there's a couple more that I want to read from the Gospels on this theme of um, those who are first are really slaves, and that will help us understand what it means to be the head of the family. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Again, to this thing about wanting to be uh, first, great. And he said to them, but, but for the wrong reasons, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as the one who serves? So Christ, again, is using his own example to show that even though he's God, and obviously first, that he did not exercise his authority as saying, you will serve me, but he served the apostles. And he says that, as we'll read on the explanation, Blessed Theophilact interprets this part of the Bible and says, from this they were led on to say, I am better, I am greater, and so forth. What does the Lord do? He puts an end, so that sounds like, as, as I said today, I am smarter, I am, I am better, women are better, men are better, whatever. I am greater, I am better. It's this continual madness that exists from then and still continues on today. And that's the, the very bad. What does the Lord do? He puts an end to their turmoil by giving two examples. In the first, he refers to the Gentiles whom the disciples considers, considered an abomination and shows that if the disciples strive with one another in this fashion, they will be just like the Gentiles. In other words, abominable. In the second example, he refers to himself guiding them towards humility by his own actions and showing them that he himself is a servant to them. For at the very time, as it has been said, he himself had distributed the bread and the cup to them in the mystical supper, the last supper, we see that Christ served the disciples. He didn't get them to serve him, but he served them. Therefore, he says, if I, who am worshipped by every angelic and rational creature am among you as he who serves, how can you dare to esteem yourselves highly and to strive one another for the privilege of being first? So Christ is saying, I am first, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, lording it over you. I'm not squashing you. I'm not making you serve me. And the last one, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also 
or to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. John chapter 13, line 13 to 15. Not only did he serve the apostles at the Last Supper, but he also washed their feet. And Saint and Blessed Theophilac writes, You confess that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet. This is so. Therefore, how much more should you wash one another's feet, that is, serve one another? Not necessarily wash someone's feet, but serve one another. Since the Lord has commanded us to perform this demeaning service, foot washing, we should gladly serve others in any other way necessary. For I have given you an example that as I have done to you, so you should do as zealously as I. But my deed is greater because I, the master, have washed the feet of my servants. That's even greater. While on the other hand, I just ask you to wash the feet of your fellow servants. In other words, your equals compared to God. So God, who is above, obviously, and, and worshipped, he washes the feet of his apostles, of his disciples, and, he, and that's a great thing. But, but all I'm asking you is for you to wash each other's feet. In other words, serve each other. Who are you? Where you are equal as human beings compared to God. From the life of Elder Joseph, it says there that at the beginning of their ascetical life, both Yerunda, which is the Greek word for starets, the elder, both Elder Joseph and Father Asenios his co-struggler, were frequently tormented by demons. But it was primarily Elder Joseph who was beaten up because it was his prayer that really burned them. They didn't attack Father Arsenio so much, partly because he was not on the same level as the elder, but especially because he was a disciple. When a disciple is properly obedient and confesses honestly, openly, he eliminates the demon's right to attack him. Yerun, uh, the older, on the other hand, had an unending struggle throughout his entire life. So Elder Joseph, because of his position, because he was the head of that brotherhood, because he was taking care of the souls of the other brothers, he was tormented and physically abused by the, by the demons. While Father Asenios, because he was his disciple, he didn't suffer like that. His temptations were so severe that many times he told us, quote, if I describe to you my struggles with temptations, you will not be able to bear it because my entire life has been a martyrdom. But the goodness of God and Our Lady the Theotokos, who always protected me, gave me a kind of persistence patience and toughness so that I would not give up. In difficult times, what really helps and saves you is tears, but everything depends on the goodness of God. We read the life of Elder Joseph, we marvel at it, and we say he was the, the elder. And we have this image that because he was the elder and people showed him respect, that he was loving the power, that people used to come and kiss his hand. That he, but that's not what it was. Yes, he was 
he was he was the head of that brotherhood but he was tortured because he was the head the same as the, the abbot of a monastery or the abbess of a monastery the nuns or the monks if they're obedient they don't get tortured they don't get much, they don't have as much temptations if at all if they're obedient the more obedient they are the more they're left alone like we read in the example of elder of Saint Dorotheos of Gaza. And here we read the same thing. They said that the devil, the demons didn't bother the disciples much. They were after him. That's the same as a priest of a parish. When he's taking care of souls, he's tortured. If a priest is, is actually is serving the people, he's not this person who sits with glory where everyone kisses his hand and has glory. No. He is a slave and tormented and tortured. And when they can't get to him, they go to his family. The demons took revenge on Elder Joseph for the soul-saving work he was doing, as we can see from the following excerpts from his letters. Number one, as for me, the elder says, I'm constantly ill. I'm like a paralytic. I can't take 10 steps. Because of this and everything else, I am dead tired. P please, I ask you, pray for me because I have many souls that seek my help. And believe me, my fathers and brethren, for every single soul that is helped, I go through the warfare that that soul has. In other words, if someone comes to him and that person has a demon bothering them with blasphemies and then the elder helps that person, a lot of times that demon leaves that person goes on to the elder. That's why a lot of times priests, if they're not struggling, they won't help people because they know that when a person comes that's got problems, those temptations can jump on them. This is also why your elder is... Con now he's writing to someone. Someone wrote to him and said... Um, my, um, my elder doesn't care about me. So he's writing back and says, this is also why your elder is constantly ill, he's saying. He is debilitated by the mental strain and the temptations which he suffers because of all of you, because your elders taking care of your souls, he's tortured, he's suffering. Therefore, my child, don't repeat what the devil is telling you. Don't listen to the thoughts that your elder doesn't like you or doesn't care about you. That the elder is supposedly indifferent to you and overlooks your toil and your needs. How is it possible for him to be indifferent since he suffers for all of you? How can, in other words, how can a person say that the spiritual father or the elder or the eldest, the abbess, the abbot, how can they say, oh, he doesn't care, she doesn't care, when that person's being tortured for that per for the souls of the people he's taken care of, that might be a clue for the marriage, perhaps. Some of you say, oh, does that mean what? That we have to treat the husband like an elder? Is that what I mean? Or does it, or does it actually mean that he who is first, let he, he's the slave of all and tortured as well? Every harsh word that you, the disciple, say to him, the, el his, the elder, in times of temptations, 
Since it proceeds from the serpent, the devil, waters his soul with poison. Every time that you speak back to your elder, every time that you're back-chatting and not listening, um, it's like you're, you're uh, putting poison into your elder's soul. And his soul withers like a flower struck by hail, as we noticed with the hail lately. Then he is no longer able to pray for himself until the pain goes away. On the contrary, when the disciples are obedient in everything, then the elder is uplifted, he prays fervently, he is enlightened abundantly, he speaks wisely, he advises in good order, he receives additional grace, and he becomes an ever-flowing spring, distributing to everyone the divine grace that he has received from the Lord. Now, that answers the question. People say, oh, how come there's no elders in Australia? Why aren't there any elders in Australia? What's happening? Is God cruel? Why has he left us like this? Well, there's the answer. Doesn't it say there? Because people don't listen. People actually don't listen. I'm not an elder, but as a priest, I give, I give some people some advice. They're not going to do it. And you watch them tortured. You watch them lose themselves. You watch them become ill, mentally ill, fall away, uh, leave the church. God gives according to the people. If there are good people, if there are good spiritual children, God will send good spiritual fathers. And one, before we, this is the end of our prerequisites for section B, I'm going to read to you Luke 12, line 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So to those who have been given power, grace, position of being first whatever, those people will be asked at the last judgment more than those who are under that person. So the responsibility, the burden of those who are put in a position of leader is great. And the punishment is greater. Now we are in a better position to study more closely the verse, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now let's look at that. Is that what it means? We've got, we already heard about inequality, equality, and we heard a lot about um, he who is first shall be servant and last. Now, from the last talk, some of you remember, Elder Epiphanius, he would say, the ram, meaning the male sheep, leads the flock. Thus we see that the law of nature and the written law of God agrees. In nature, even if you don't believe in God, even if you don't read the Bible, you see it in nature, like I mentioned last time and today. But also in the Bible we see the following. It, 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 we see that the law of nature agrees with the Bible in that it gives the leading role to the man. So Elder Epiphanius is saying straight here that for the husband is the head of the wife means that he has to lead. That's what he's saying. But let's see. Maybe that's his opinion. Let's see if there's a consensus. We have to read more. At another point, El Epiphanio says, 
Uh, he was a great spiritual father, by the way, in Greece. Thus the elder gave, on the one hand, to the man the leading role of responsibility and initiative, while at the same time protecting him from the egotistical viewpoint, I am the man, whatever I say goes. So Elder Epiphanius said, yes, the man is the head, yes, the man is the leader, but, Elder Epiphanius says, but that doesn't mean for him to sit there and say, I am the man, whatever I say goes. Father John Christiankin, just in case our Russian people here think I only talk about Greek things, Father John Christiankin, he said, you are the head of the family. He says to the man, you are the head of the family and it is your responsibility to care for your family's spiritual and material well-being. You yourself should think and act in this way without fail. May God give you wisdom. So not only the Greeks, just in case you say, oh, that's the Greeks, they're different. But Father John Christiankin also said, and he passed away in 2006, so he knows about the feminist movement. And he knows that about the way the world's become in our modern times. If he felt that that did not mean that man is the head, he, would have, he wouldn't have said it. And he says clearly to the husband who wrote to him, you are the head of the family and it's your responsibility to care for your family's spiritual and material well-being. Elder Paisios said... Sacred scripture says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. So he quotes that. Now let's, let's see what he explains, how he explains it. So he quotes it. His explanation is, God has determined that men should be the head of the household. For the woman to be the head instead of the man is disdain for God. It's disrespectful to God. And I'll put my own words, it's abominable. And he says here, God first made Adam and then Eve. We're going to go about that in a minute. Elder Paisios agrees with the other two elders. And he says it clearly, God has determined. It's God's will that man should be the head of the household. Remember, we're still going to go on to see what exactly this head means. St. Gregory the theologian who passed away in 391 wrote, Beware that you are a woman. And you have an important and great purpose and destiny. However, your purpose and destiny is different to that of your husband, who must be the head of your household. So he says to the woman, you have a great destiny, a purpose in life, but it's not to be the head. Your husband is the head of the household. St. John Chrysostom said... St. Paul places the head in authority and the body in obedience for the sake of peace. In other words, he's saying the head, meaning the husband, and the wife, body, meaning that. And he says there, for the sake of peace, which we heard from the first part A about obedience, but here now is going for not just obedience, it's, this is an authority. It's not just a simple obedience. The woman just for the sake of unity and all that. Yes, that's, that's, there's some truth there. But this is something even higher, that man is the head. He says, um, where there is equal authority, there never is peace. A household cannot be a democracy ruled by everyone, but the authority must necessarily rest in one person. 
That's St. John Chrysostom. Not me. St. John Chrysostom. A household cannot be a democracy. In other words, you can't have everyone saying their opinions and this and that, whatever, meaning that everyone's the boss. Like a kitchen, even in a kitchen, as I said before. There was the head, there's one head chef. So if you have a kitchen when there's two head chefs and you've got all the cooks there, one says that, one says that, they get confused. What, what, who, who would eat at a restaurant like that? Elder Paisius said, God has created all things in wisdom. He has granted man with certain virtues and women with other virtues. Again, not equality. Men are different to women. He has granted man strength and manliness so that he can manage when things are difficult and so that women will submit to his leadership. For if God had also given the woman the same manliness, the family wouldn't succeed, wouldn't thrive. So men have different hormones. And those hormones make him to have that extra strength and that manliness. Women don't have that unless you belong to the feminist movement. Then somehow they want to have that as well. They want to have what the men have even though they hate the men. So they're better than men but they want the same hormones as the men. So at the end, what do you get? Schizophrenia. There was once a fierce woman who was known by many people in a certain area of Greece. She wore a long white shirt and always carried a large curved sword. She joined a gang of thieves. Imagine them having a woman in their company. She once travelled on foot for hours to a distant village to obtain a young man and make him husband to her daughter. When he refused to go with her, she grabbed him, carried him on her back and brought him into her village. But these are rare happenings, he said. If you send a woman to the battlefield, you can be sure that they will mistake the Boy Scouts for the enemy and run away. Now, that's important as well. He said, yes, men are the stronger. This woman was exceptional. There are some women that are strong. But let's not make a rule about it. In general, men have that manliness and strength and God gave them that so that it can be complementary with the woman who submits. And he says here, which is, which is quite opposite to what women are trying to get into the army and special forces and all these things, where he says that uh, women, if you send women to the battlefield, you can be sure that they'll mistake the Boy Scouts for the enemy and run away. Because in general, women don't have that same courage and manliness. Does that make them less of a person? No. Someone that I know went to a physiotherapist. And the physiotherapist said, I do a lot of police here. I do physiotherapy for a lot of police, um, from the police force. And he goes, um, I, you, know what the, you know what the policemen say? He says, it's so difficult when you have to work with women police because while we're working, we're trying to, you know, put, trying to 
get this criminal, but at the same time, we've got to be concentrating on the female police because some of these men are big and a lot of those women can't do it. They say the same in the army. But no, equality, stubbornness, rebellion. They say, no, we're going we're to be the same. As I said in the last talk, as I said, in America, there's those Navy SEALs, all men. But they're not going to stop until they try and get in there. The Israelis have actually said, we tried all that. We've got women, but not front line. He goes, we tried that. It didn't work. In the service of St. Catherine, we read the following, which is today with the Russians, but tomorrow with the um, Greeks in the old calendar. St. Catherine says, courageously, sorry, the service to St. Catherine says, courageously you went to contest, O Catherine, with manliness, confessing Christ God, O blessed martyr. And another part of the service says, for she changed her womanly nature onto manliness. And in the service of St. Ephemia, it says, for lawfully playing the man and casting off woman's frailty, meaning woman's weakness, through athletic labours, she hurled the tyrannical enemy to the ground. So even the martyrs are given an extraordinary grace to become, in some, with that, like men, to be able to endure because it's not part of woman's nature. St. Anastasia, the service, says, following manfully in the steps of the holy martyrs, struggles for Christ's sake, O righteous Anastasia, etc., etc. So, yes, um, there are differences. Men have different virtues to women. And let's see now what Archimand Wright Vasilius Bakuyani says from his book on marriage the, in marriage the spiritual arena, he says, St. Paul says, there is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ, Jesus. So St. Paul says that men and women are the same. There's no difference. Men and women are therefore equal before God. There they are equal. However, there is not one gender but two. This means that there are differences between them. They each have their own spiritual and physiological differences, characteristics. Yes, they are both equal in God's eyes. However, someone must be the head or there will be anarchy, disorder. According to Holy Scripture, man should be first because, firstly, man was created before woman and this wasn't accidental. Number two, Eve was created from man for man. And I'll read the quote quickly. And the Lord God said, It is not good that, a man, that man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God caused a sleep, deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he's saying there that woman was created from man, for man. Let's go to the third one. After the fall, 
when Adam and Eve sinned, it says there, God said to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And the fourth one that the Archimandrite picks is, for the husband is the head of the wife. So he's picking that exact verse that we're studying and he says that's what it means. St Paul is literally saying that, as did St John Chrysostom, as did St Father Epiphanius, as did Elder Paisius, etc. They all agreed. Now I'm going to read some things from Father Alexi Young, which as I said before, I find them very, very good. And he says on his writings on marriage, he says, Wives must allow their husbands to take the lead in all things. Similarly, all husbands are required to assume their place as leaders in the marriage relationship. Husband and wife are completely equal one to another in God's eyes. But a husband is obeyed and respected because of his position and calling which were bestowed upon him mystically in the sacrament of marriage. Now that is interesting. It's a, it's a position, he's saying, given by God. It's a calling given by God. And it, this authority, this headship, was bestowed upon him mystically in the sacrament of marriage. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to read you part of the marriage service. And I look at this as when a priest gets ordained. When a priest gets ordained, he receives the priesthood and then he's able to perform the sacraments. A priest that's not been ordained canonically cannot do that. Now, a man and a woman during the marriage service, they're also given like an like a ordination. A special thing, grace. Let's see what it says. And the priest says, Now also, O Master, our Lord and our God, send down your heavenly grace upon these your servants, name and name, like the two names of the person, John and Maria, say, and grant that this your handmaid may in all things be subject unto her husband and that this your servant may be the head of his wife and that they may live according to your will. So while the priest is reading that, he blesses them. At that time, they receive grace. And what are they receiving the grace for? One, for the man to be the head, and, woman for the, and, and, the, and the woman is receiving grace to be able to submit. Because to be able to submit is very difficult, as we just heard from all the things about obedience. Obedience is very hard because of the ego. And to be the head, if you're the head because you want to be a show-off or because you love the power or you want to squash your wife and have her as a slave, then that's a problem. And this is why a couple are married. The priest is bestowing on them that grace to be able to keep each to keep their position. I call it like an ordination. Now that we've established that, that... That's what it means, clearly. We come to the question that we asked at the beginning of part B. Does this mean that women are to be men's servants? Elder, this is what Archimand write in, in his book writes. Does this mean that women are to be men's servants? No. Women are companions. The Holy Fathers insist on this. Then he picks a few of the fathers. Let's see. Because that's what women say. Okay, the man is the head. 
The woman has to be obedient. To me, that sounds like a slave. Is that what the church is saying? Because we've already established that clearly, this is John Chrysostom, etc., they're all saying clearly that the, when you read the man is the head, it really means the man is the head. But does this now mean that the woman is a slave? St. Cosmas of Italia taught, for this reason God did not create Eve from Adam's feet so that he wouldn't disdain her, but he created her from his side so that he would have her as his companion. St. John Chrysostom taught, why did God place you, the man, as the head of the woman so that you suffer for her the weaknesses of the being that you are leading? And you make your authority evident. He's going to say now, what is this authority? What does it mean to be head? He goes, and you make your authority evident when you do not disdain your wife, when you do not oppress her, and when you do not treat her badly. Your wife is like a harbour for you. Do not trouble the waters. Do not sink your home. Both St. John Chrysostom and St. Cosmas, the Greek saint, equal to the apostles of Etolia, directly saying you, that does not mean because you're the head, it doesn't mean that your wife is a slave. Let's see what St. Tikhon of Zadonsk says. He wrote, a man must not treat his wife as a slave but as a helpmate, but the wife ought to submit to her husband. As the apostle teaches, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And St. Cosmas again advises husbands, be careful, men, be careful, husbands, in other words, not to look at your wives with a fierce stare, like a dirty look, like one of anger. You must not, my brother, treat your wife like a slave. And Father Alexi Young said, said, wrote, obedience cannot be forced. It must come from the heart voluntarily. This is true love. In other words, you can't force a woman, a wife, to be obedient. It's got to come that she wants to be. Now, we've established there that the church teaches clearly that man is the head and the next step, it doesn't mean that women are slaves. Now I'm going to say something surprising which confirms what we read before. Elder Paisius will answer the question. Someone asked me, Yerunda, uh, Elder, what is it that most unites husband and wife? Gratitude, I answered. They love each other for what they give as a gift to one another. The compliment. One compliments the other. The wife offers her husband trust, devotion, obedience. The husband offers his wife assurance and security that he can protect her. The wife is the noble lady of the household, but also the mature servant. The husband is the captain of the household, but also the lowest labourer. And I underline that last line. The husband is the captain of the household. He is the head of the household, but also he is the lowest labourer. What does the lowest labourer mean? Like a person who serves the others. Actually, when it says, oh, women can say, oh, does that mean because the man is the head that that I'm a slave. No, it's the opposite. The man's the slave. The man is the slave. The slave to you. But how can he be a slave if, if he's the head? That's what, we, that's, what, that's what we're going to see, aren't we? 
Father Lexi Young, he writes, in St. Paul's instruction to husbands and wives, there is a great mystery and a seeming contradiction. A husband is appointed the head of the wife, but is also to be her servant. How can this be? The apostle says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And then he goes on to say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her. So what did Christ do? So love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do when he was here? He served everyone. And at the end, what did he do for the church? He gave himself and died for the church. So then St. Paul saying, you are to do the same. You are to give yourself. You are to serve your wife, just like Christ served the church, and die for your wife like Christ died for the church. Archimand Wright Vasilius Bakuyani says, The church may define man as the head of woman, but at the same time the church commands husbands to love their wives just as much as they love themselves. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, Ephesians chapter 5, line 33, which is in what I read before. So he's saying, yes, the man is the head, but let each one of you so love his wife as himself. Do you want to be abused? No, don't abuse your wife. Do you want to be treated properly? Yes, then treat your wife properly. The church therefore combines love with authority. So when we say the man is the head, yes, he has authority, but at the same time, he has to love. This is why such authority inspires the wife to respect and trust her husband. And I add, because he lo- so what, he, what the wife says, because he loves me and sacrifices himself for me and serves me, I respect him as the head. I respect him as my head. So what do you mean when we say, what do we mean when we say love someone? It means that we give all for this person. It means we sacrifice ourselves. As we said, no greater love is a man than to lay down his life for someone else. When you say that you love your spouse, this means you sacrifice yourself for her because love is not self-seeking. True love doesn't seek what suits that you. True love is you serving the other person. Like a man might say, I love you to his wife so she can wash the clothes. That's not, that's not, um, that's not love because that's self-seeking. Father Alexei Young writes, to be second in a marriage, in other words, to be the wife, is a positive good, not an evil. The husband bears the terrible burden of responsibility for the entire family. That's been given by God. However, a wife is not totally free of responsibility, but it's, it's not as great as the responsibility her husband has, and therefore God will demand less of the wife on the day of judgment. And that's why I noticed when I went to Greece, uh, to my mother's village, I noticed that a lot of women were black, were wearing black. And when you speak to them, you find that their husbands died many, many years before. So they might have been 80, and you find out their husbands died 50. Why? 
because of the responsibility that they had to carry, and sometimes the responsibility is crushing. And women are not too suited to that. The feminists can say it, and they can say to you, I am a woman, I am strong, like the Helen Reddy song, um, I can do anything, I am invincible. Wishful thinking, why then are so many women leaving the feminist movement? Why? Why are so many women giving up the job and say, like, stuff the career, I don't want to, I want to, go, I want to be home with my children, using an Australian expression. I don't want that. Doesn't mean that women who work or have careers, I'm not saying absolutely that's wrong. I'm just saying a lot of women don't want that. They just notice, I can't do it unless I'm drugged. And a lot of them have to be, no, I'm not joking, a lot of them are on certain tablets, which is equivalent to what they sell on the streets illegally, which is like speed, which is to make them to be able to do a lot. How, how, does, how do they do it? Get up in the morning, the children, take them to the school, then go to work, and then come back, and then do this and do that, and then whatever. And the husband, to me, it's all chaos. And they say, I can't do it. A lot of them have said that. So I'm not saying for you to do that. I'm saying what, what the women are saying. Go women, girl power, all over the schools. Remember that website I mentioned last week, last, last talk, where it was talking about that woman, Suzanne Venka, where she was some type of committee for men and boys, I think, that some disaster in society today, especially in Western society, that men and boys are actually uh, being disadvantaged. So I saw this little video there on some website and it's, this fellow was saying that in America, the book, which has all programs and support and funding for women is this thick, like a telephone book. And the book, which has all the funding and that for the help of men and boys, is thin. And that's, that's what they're saying, is a big disaster. Women are not invincible. I've dealt a lot with, with men, women and men. We know that women have certain times of the month where, as the Greeks call it, they call it asthenia, like the woman is sick, meaning at that time they're not well. They're weak at that time. That's how God made them. That's, that's, that's part of their nature. And yet, and at that time, they need to have some rest, but no, they've still got to go in that state to work, Drop off kids, pick them up, do this, do the shopping, whatever, 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 whatever. And at the end, then you wonder why a lot of them commit suicide or a lot of them have nervous breakdowns. Like the 40 days after pregnancy. No, today it's like after eight days, you go back to work. Eight days after you've just... haven't even healed properly. See? Because that's what the song says. I am invincible, I can do everything. So to be second place is not an evil. The man has more responsibility and God demands less from the wife, but still they, are, they still have responsibility. This can be compared to a parish situation 
So a parish priest carries the heavy burden of all his spiritual children on his shoulders all through his life, never escaping from it for one moment, and is accountable to God for the entire burden that priest will give word for all those who are under him. On the other hand, his deacon or his reader, the chanter, is relatively free of these responsibilities and therefore they will be less accountable. Father Alexi continues, says, Men, husbands, true love for us begins when we give of ourselves to others. We first really begin to love in a Christian sense when we first give. A husband once complained to St. John Christum that his wife did not love him. The saint replied, go home and love her. But you don't understand, said the husband to St. John Chrysostom. How can I love her when she doesn't love me? Go home and love her, said the saint. He repeated it. And he was right. Where there is no love, we must put some love and we will find it. Often, often husbands complain to a priest that their wife doesn't, have them, doesn't love them. Then the priest discovers that the husband isn't going out of his way at all to give love to his wife. He's merely sitting back and waiting to be loved. Like some kind of idol, waiting to be served and worshipped. Maybe they can put some oranges in front of him. Such a husband needs to discover that the only way to receive lasting love in a marriage is to give it. For in life, we usually receive what we give. If we give hatred, we receive hatred. If we give love, we receive it back in return. It is the duty of the husband to give love to his wife. Now, Father Alexi continues. He says, a wise wife will encourage her husband to be this kind of man. A proper wife wants her husband to be the leader. She will not try to take on the position of authority herself. And as I've said, a lot of women are saying that. If you read, but I don't want you to go there, but when I, when I um, uh, watch a lot of these 60 Minutes, you see that a lot of women are saying, I want a, a man who will take care of me who will take care of the children, help me. That's what women want because it's part of their nature to be like that. Psychologists tell us that the anger a woman feels towards a man who has allowed her to take over the leadership of the family is the deepest anger of all, and I have experienced that. Women, which they shouldn't, but they do, they hate their husbands when their husbands are not leaders. Such disrespect occurs. And we are now discovering that many cases of delinquency and even mental illness comes from homes where the father has ceased to be the leader, the source of compassion, love and protection. And I've got some um, stats, not, yeah, a bit of stats on that one. I've spoken to a lot of women and when... Their husbands are not leading. When their husbands leave the, the woman to do everything, that, that I've noticed the woman begins to hate. Now, 
even I've noticed that sometimes when the husband might be rough and not a very not very nice at times, a lot of times women can even take that, which they which it's not right for the husband to do that. But when they really begin to rebel and get very upset, is when the husband leaves his responsibilities. And I'll tell you a little secret. Breakdown in sexual relations occurs on the woman's side when the husband is not responsible. Nothing turns off a woman more than an irresponsible husband, and there's breakdowns in that area. And that's why a lot of women are not attracted to their husbands in any way sexually because of that. Oh, yes, some men can say, but I work. I work all day. I, I knew a fellow who was working seven days a week. Seven days a week. Because, oh, well, I'm working. I'm working. Yeah, you're working. Well, how about your um, wife? But I'm working for her. But what's she going to do with the money if you're not there? What's she going to do? And this really sad, sad situations where this woman, I remember she fixed herself up, she bought a nice dress, she'd done her hair up a little bit, whatever. She made a nice chicken and then in comes Fred Flintstone and he's actually there and he sits down and he didn't even notice the hair, didn't even notice her dress, didn't even notice that she made an extraordinary meal, nice meal. And she goes, oh, what do you think of the meal? Hmm. Good. Hmm. Like a caveman. That's not, that's that. And then he wonders why his wife later on fell into adultery and became a drug addict and became an alcoholic and divorced. Yeah, mm. that's it. Oh, but I'm working. Doesn't matter. You can work all you want. You can buy your wife the best house. If there's no love and the man is not in control, but he's too busy at work. And then, you know what that man said to someone once? I, I actually overheard him. He says, oh, the secret is you work all the time. That way you don't have to go home. So that shows why, what, what he was doing. Now, so let's not make that excuse. That, that's, not, that's not what women want. More and more children are going to bed at night without their father in their home. I found this in a book. The physical absence of fathers is now considered the most significant family and social problems facing America, especially over there in the black community where most women are single with children. The research is staggering. Prisoners, drug users, dropouts from school, runaways and rapists all share something in common the overwhelming majority of them come from homes without a father. Fatherless homes produce more than half of all youth suicides, as well as the majority of children with behaviour disorder, disorders. Children are 20 times more likely to end up in prison if their dad is not involved in their lives. Fatherlessness affects children's physical and mental health, 
Those living without their dads have a much higher rate of asthma, headaches, anxiety, depression, and behaviour problems. They are significantly more likely to use drugs and become suicidal. Now, I didn't have time to look up exactly where the research comes from. I think it was from a study especially to do with, as I said, the African-American in America, where there's high crime rates, a high crime rate with them, and, and they are linking it to the fact that they don't have fathers in their lives. Now, there are legitimate reasons for maybe the father died. Some women, not for their fault of their own, the husband was a horrible person and he left. But then there's others who had... Um, who don't want a man in their life or they were leading an immoral life and they don't even know who the father is. Or then there's the IVFs where the children grow up and just know that they were, uh, that their mother became pregnant with someone's sperm and they don't even know who it is. What kind of... Anyway. Sadly, the majority of children today are forsaking their church and faith after they graduate high school. This is primarily the result of poor fathering. When dads lead their family spiritually, studies suggest that children are up to 20 times more likely to stay in church long term than when mums are the spiritual leaders at home. So when that's why I've noticed that women complain to me and say, I take my children to church, but they don't go. Uh, the significant thing is that children, if they're going to stay in church, a lot of the times if they're going to stay a part of the church, is when the fathers are involved and the fathers go to church as well. That came, believe it or not, from a Protestant book, but as I said, I like to read the statistics. They do good research. From the sermons of St John Chrysostom, we're not going to have time to go to part C, which is the fear, which is a bit of an upset there, but anyway. St. John Chrysostom said, Let us accept then that the husband is to occupy the place of the head and the wife that of the body and listen to what headship means. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Notice that after saying the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, St. Paul immediately says that the church is his body and he's, he himself, meaning Christ, its saviour. It is the head that upholds the well-being of the body. So it's a little bit theological there, but I'll explain. The body has no life without a head. And the woman has been looked at as the body and the man as the head. Without a head, there's no life for the body. So St. Paul, as St. John Chrysostom is explaining it, is saying it is the head that upholds the well-being of the body. It is the man which, that upholds the well-being of the wife and therefore the family. In his other, in his other epistles, St. Paul has already laid the foundation of marital love and has assigned to husband and wife each his proper place which is what I said in the beginning of the talk. What is the position of man and woman in the marriage? And he says here, to the husband, one of leader and provider, and to the wife, one of submission. 
Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands as to God. Not that the husband is God. As to God meaning that it's a commandment. Note, this comes from the same book. If, the other book that I was reading before, if your marriage fails, he's talking to the man, this, this writer speaking to the husband, if your marriage fails or is failing, it likely comes down to one clear reason. You have not loved your wife just as Christ also loved the church. Most marriage problems are usually the result of a wife's wounded reaction to poor leadership and lack of love from her husband. That's what causes problems in marriage. When the man's not a leader and when the man does not love his wife, that's the disaster. A man wants to love a woman who deeply respects and appreciates him, but the kind of man that a woman appreciates and respects is one who, what type of man does a woman respect and is willing to be obedient? One who sacrificially loves her, who patiently honours her, who lays down his life for her on a daily basis. And what woman does not want that? Hmm? That's why you read those stupid little things on those internets, those, all those love things. It's all to do with, a lot of it's to do with a woman wanting a man to love her and help her and protect her, etc. That is what it is. And even feminists, you see them that when they finally wake up and say, that I'm, not, I'm not getting anywhere with this, they find a man and then you notice that they submit. Interesting that they, are, that they actually submit because it's part of their nature. St John Christum said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. You have heard how important obedience is. St John Christum says, We've heard how important it is for a woman to be obedient to the man, to the husband. You have praised and marvelled at St Paul how he bonds our whole life together as we would expect from an admirable and spiritual man. You've done well. But now, let's listen to what else he requires from you, the husband. He has not finished with his examples, with, with, with his example. Husbands, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You have seen the amount of obedience necessary. Now hear about the amount of love necessary. So yes, we've heard a woman must be obedient to her husband. That's one side. But now let's look at the other side. Let's see how much love is necessary. Do you want your wife to be obedient to you as the church is to Christ? Then be responsible for the same providential care of your wife as Christ is for the church. They use the example of the church as a way to explain it. And even if it becomes necessary for you to give your life for her, yes, and even to endure and undergo suffering of any kind, do not refuse. Even though you undergo all this, you will never have done anything equal to what Christ has done. So that if you want to be a proper husband, then you are to love your wife, serve her, 
and give your life for her if necessary. And that's why St. John Chrysostom says in another place, he goes, that's why men are willing to go into the, to fight when they know the en an, an enemy is approaching their country or their city and you know what happens when they come, they kill, they rape and things like that and men are willing to go to die to protect their families. That's usually how it is, not that there aren't women who also helped in war and things like that. But in general, that's, how, that's what happens. St. John Chrysostom said, the wife is a secondary authority, but nevertheless, she possesses real authority and equality of worth. So yes, the man is the head. They're equal in God's eyes. And she's worth the same as a man is worth. Even though the man is the head, it doesn't mean that a woman is not equal to a man. While the husband still retains the role of headship. So he's saying here, I'll read it again. The wife is a secondary authority, second place, in other words, in the sense of authority in the marriage. But nevertheless, she possesses real authority and equality of worth, while the husband still retains the role of headship. See, it sounds contradictory. How can they be equal if the man is the head? And St. John Christopher is saying they are equal, even if the man is the head. They're still equal. Lead your wife and your whole household will be in order and in harmony. We're going back to before, beginning of the talk. As with a general whose troops are so well organised on the front that the enemy cannot find a place to penetrate for an attack, so it is with husband and wife. When the concerns of everyone in the house are the same... Harmony reigns in the family, but if not, the entire household is easily broken up and destroyed. What's these aims? The aim is the well-being of the family, salvation. When the husband and wife have that as common, everything falls into place and everyone keeps their roles. The enemy, meaning the demons or society or whatever, can't penetrate and destroy that marriage. And another part of St. John Chrysostom's further, I think we're coming to our end. Let us therefore thoroughly care for our wives and children. By doing so, we are making our responsibility of headship, headship an easy task. Thus, we will have a good defence before Christ's judgment seat. Remember what I said before, the head will give word on the day of judgment. God will demand more from the man and the woman because he was given that great responsibility of taking care of his wife and children. If the husband is worthy and the head sound and the rest of the body will suffer no harm. If the husband is proper, then the body, meaning the wife, will be protected. Everything will go beautifully. Paul has precisely described for the husband and wife what is fit and behaviour for each. She should reverence him as the head and he should love her as his body. Love her not so much for her own sake, but for Christ's sake. Let's not love your wife as you would uh, an idol, which is what a lot of times men do. They love their wives in an unnatural way and worship them, and husbands and wives do the same. No, do it as the way God wants it done. Do it as an, uh, as in the way that the church requires. That's why he says there, 
Let her let, love her not so much for her own sake, but for Christ's sake. This is why he says, wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. In other words, wives, submit to your husbands, because it's a commandment. Do everything for the Lord's sake in a spirit of obedience to him, to God, because this is what he wants. These words should be enough to convince us to avoid quarrels and disagreements. Now... When I first read this, I go, what's that hanging on there at the end? First he says, do everything for the Lord's sake in a spirit of obedience to him. Then he goes, these words should be enough to convince us to avoid quarrels and disagreements. And I kind of, I kind of said to myself, what does that mean? What does that mean? Then I understood. He's saying that a lot of the quarrels and disagreements is over power, the power struggle. If the woman knows her position, the man knows his position, then what's there to disagree about? What are the disagreements today? A lot of times, the husband's not responsible, he's not doing his role and loving his wife, and the woman is not submitting and contradicting and fighting back and back-chatting and all these other things. That's what causes quarrels. And but when you know your position, he goes, uh, these words should be enough to convince us to avoid quarrels and disagreements. A wife should never nag her husband. In other words, to say, you lazy coward, you have no ambition, look at our relatives and neighbours, they have plenty of money, their wives have far more than I do. Let no wife say such things. She is her husband's body and it is not for her to dictate to her head but to submit and obey. Now, even people who aren't in the church... When they see a woman doing that, it looks revolting. Even, I would have to say, even some feminists, when they see that type of uh, situation of the woman belittling, it just comes out and they even make the say, oh, she's like a bloke, she's like a guy or she's whatever. They make um, terms like that. It doesn't come across well. Just as when you see a man belittling his wife, treating her bad, it causes your stomach to turn. Both things. Because it's unnatural. But why should she endure poverty, some will ask. If she is poor, let her console herself by thinking of those who are much poorer still. If she really loved her husband, she would never speak to him like that. So before we spoke a lot about the husband's duties... And, and Saint Paul spoke very. Saint John Christum spoke very strictly again about men that aren't doing their duty. Now we're speaking about the women. If she really loved her husband, she would never speak to him like that, but would value having him close to her more than all the gold in the world. And that's why you see rich people divorce. What did, what, what did the money do? Therefore, if a husband has a wife who behaves this way. He must never exercise his authority by insulting and abusing her. So he's saying, what happens if a woman does speak to a man like that? Because he's the head and has the authority, does he have a right to reprimand her strictly, to exercise his authority, to punish her? We will see that in society... That can happen. 
whereby a teacher can punish a child. People can get sacked. People can even be fined. They actually find people in some... Um, they, get, they dock some of their pay if they do something wrong, whatever. Punishments, whatever. Does that mean that a husband has that right? In all the other cases, yes, but never, but never, as we hear, just heard now, never in the case of marriage. A husband has no right to exercise his authority in a way that's punishing to his wife, as a teacher would, or as a, as the police would, or the government, or the courts, or whatever else in society. In the army, for example, disobedience is regarded as one of the worst things. If you're not obedient to, your, to the general, to the captain or whatever, that could land you in jail. Everywhere you see there are punishments, but not in marriage. Tell her that you love her more than your own life because this present life is nothing and that your only hope is that the two of you pass through this life in such a way in the world to come you'll be united in perfect love. Say to her, quote, our time here is brief and temporary, but if we are pleasing to God, we can exchange this life for the kingdom to come. Then we'll be perfectly one both with Christ and each other and our pleasure will know no bounds. I value your love above all things. This is what a, how a man should speak to his wife, for example, at all times, but if she's rude and horrible and this and that, then... He can say that. And look at that beautiful thing there where he says that if we lead our lives here properly, then not only will we gain the kingdom of heaven, but we will be together forever. United in love. I value your love above all things and nothing would be bitter, so bitter or painful to me as our being on bad terms with each other. Even if I lose everything, any affliction is tolerable if you will be true to me, faithful to me. Show her that you value her company and prefer being at home to being out. Esteem her in the presence of your friends and children. Praise and show admiration for her good acts and if she ever does anything foolish, advise her patiently. Remind one another that nothing in life is to be feared except offending God. If your marriage is like this, your perfection will rival the holiest of monks. So St. John Christum, as I've read before, is saying, if your love and your relationship with your wife is such that you're doing everything that you can to be in accordance with God's commandments, then you can reach the holiness equivalent to the holiest of monks and nuns. One cannot be saved or, or sanctified if the dynamics in the marriage is wrong. If the woman is the head or the man is the not loving his wife, sacrificing, etc. And the last one, St John Christum said, finally, never call her by her name alone, but with terms of affection, honour and love. So what's he saying there? What's, what's a monk doing given advice to husbands. I'll give you an example of that. I was dealing once with a woman who 
basically had a breakdown. She couldn't take care of her children and I suggested, I said, look, maybe it's better if you go somewhere. Elder Porfirios, by the way, advised the same thing to a woman who had completely broken down. And I said, why don't you go and stay somewhere else? Get out of the house and just relax. Go to the mountain somewhere, live there, and relax with some friends. So she did. The husband was upset, not because the wife was had a breakdown, because he had to wash the clothes, take care of the children, and he never had his sexual partner. That's the main reason. Not because she was sick. Anyway, so the husband went to visit the wife, to go and visit her at this place that she was staying. And I said to the husband, when you see her, go for a little walk, hold her hand, and you know, show some affection. So they went out, they went for a walk, and they came, and then later on she said to me, she goes, oh, he held my hand, and I said to him, you miss me, don't you? And I said, I said to myself, I didn't say to her, I go, you poor thing, I'm the one that told him. I'm the one that told him to hold your hand. I don't think he would even care. So maybe some of you can ask the same question. What's a monk doing telling a man to hold his wife's hand? And the simple reason is because no one else is saying anything hardly. So let's look what St John Christum says. Finally, never call her by her name alone, but with terms of affection, honour and love. If you honour her, she won't need honour from others. She won't desire praise from others if she enjoys the praise that comes from you. So don't just call her by her name. Call her affectionate names. My love. Or whatever. Some people use honey, whatever, I don't know, whatever. So um, use those terms St John Chrysostom saying. And he says that if you praise her, if you show her love, she's not going to go look for it from someone else, like the one with the chicken dinner. That poor thing was dried up. She was like, and I'm, I don't want you to laugh, not she was a dried out prune. She was, she had no, like a prune as hardly no juice. She had nothing left of her, like the other one that went for the walk. And she was skipping for joy and she became all enlivened because she actually thought that the husband was holding the hand because he loved her. My main problems that I have with marriages, if I, if I may say, my main fight sometimes is trying to get husbands to be responsible and to be proper towards them. That, that's the main thing. And the many that I've kicked out in, the, in my years, and I'm telling you kicked out, if I could physically, I'd probably even do that, but I can't do it anymore. I would, I tell them, go, just go. One person said to me, I said to him, look, you have to show love to your wife and you have to show love to your children, take care and things like that. He worked. Oh, he made money. Plenty of money, but not much honey. And what happened was, 
that I said to him, are you going to try to be proper with your wife? He goes, I can't do it. I go, so you, you say you can't do it? Okay, uh, don't call me again. Because you might say, oh, that's harsh. That's like, but sorry, I mean, I was trying to help these people for years. I don't think it's just a one, two-day thing. This is years, number one. Number two, he didn't say to me, I'm, I'm going to try. He didn't say to me, please help me, please pray for me, that I can have. He said, dead, that's it. Because I can't do it. And that, to me, is blasphemy. Because he's saying that God, with God's grace, he can't change. Which means he didn't want to change. So my main beef, if you can use that word, is with husbands. My main problem, my main uh, 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 pain is being with them. Like some man who said to me, oh, she doesn't respect me. She said, oh, my wife doesn't respect me. How can she respect you when you the way you act, the way you treat her? It goes, but she's like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, using the expression? What comes first, you loving her or her respecting you? Oh, she doesn't love me. She doesn't respect me. I'm asking you the question, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, in other words? Okay, that, that's what comes first, the wife love you? Yes, there are some wives, which are truly saints, who love their husbands, even though they're horrible. That's exceptional. Really exceptional. And we see that in the lives of saints, and they become, they're, real, they're holy. That's usually quite difficult. It needs a very strong woman, not physically, spiritually, to do that. For the success of the marriage, as we just heard now before, written by Protestants, by the way, and by what St John Chrysostom said, etc., is that the man has to be the head, he has to love, and then she becomes alive in it. A woman is not happy taking care of her children. Don't believe that a woman actually uh, takes care of the children because just because they're her children. And that, that gives her joy. No, I've dealt with a lot of women whose husbands are dead and they've got their children but they can't connect with their children. They have a problem, their relationship with their children and they're very, very unhappy women because a woman does not become alive from just her children and hence why these women that have children without men they're not happy. A woman becomes alive when her husband loves her. Then she has the energy, the grace to take care of her children. Like that one. That the husband gave no, no love. She couldn't, the, the children were just running around. They, there was none, the, she could not take care of those children. So he says here, prefer her before all others, both for her beauty and her discernment, and praise her, she will in this way be persuaded to listen to none that are outside, but to disregard the entire world except for you. And if you study society, you will see 
that that's what is coming out today. Women, that's what they want. And proper men, that's what they want as well. They, wanna, they want that. Now, some of you might say, but what happens if the woman needs to work? Or what happens if um, the man can't work? That's difficult. There's even a case a few years ago where there was the, the, the woman, they weren't even married anyway, but they were orthodox, but the woman was working and she said, you take care of the child, I think they had a couple of children, you take care of the children to the husband and I'll work. There was nothing to say that she would get more money. Sometimes that happens. And she was working when she would come home, he would cook for her and all these type of things. And he committed suicide. And it's, it's, it's very interesting that one of the things that he said before he did that, which no one knew was going to do it, is he said that I, I, I feel that I can't provide for my family. I feel that I can't um, because they weren't, they didn't have, they had to rent or something. I can't buy a property. I can't do this. I can't whatever. And he um, done himself in. I've seen a lot of men who have lost their jobs, as we know from America, from the financial crisis, who committed suicide because they couldn't provide for their families, which is not right to do, but I'm just telling you. Because it's in the nature of the man to be the provider. Now, what happens if you've got a situation where the woman's the doctor and a man might be just a factory worker? She gets much more money than, than, um, than, than him. A lot of times one has to look at it and say, well, one has to try with all their ability to make it a normal situation where the man is the head of the family, he's in, he's in control of the family, meaning taking care of the family, and be in the position where he's working. I've seen that the men that don't work a lot of times become sick, mentally ill, and women who prefer to work, they don't have to work. So there might be situations where women have to work because of the situation, the money, I don't know, whatever. But a lot of times it's all to do with selfishness and women don't want to take care of their family. They prefer to work, they enjoy it, they like work. They don't have to work a lot of times. Or they can do part-time. A lot of times the two have to work because of their extravagant lifestyle. The two cars, the boat, the big house, the big mortgage, the, uh, the kids, the private schools, all these ridiculous... Obviously they've got to work. Now, my advice when people get married, I say to them... When you go for your loan, you make the loan in this way. You will base your loan on the wage of the husband. Even though they've got no children, the woman's working, if you put the two wages together, they can get a lot of money. Why? Because later on, when she has children, when you have children, and she wants to stay, and she wants to take care of the children and not leave them to others to take care of, there's no way that that loan could be serviced because you need the two salaries. So I would say always 
speak to the man having the, the, the um, salary or part-time if this woman's going to do a bit of... Sometimes they can work from home, but anyway. So that if she decides that she wants to take care of her children, she wants to be at home, she, then she can do it. I speak to a lot of women that they go, we can't do it. Because when we got our loan, it was based on both wages. Why would banks do that anyway? Obviously because the society is gearing towards women. You work. You don't take care of your children because it doesn't make the feminists happy. You will work until you're 60. Okay. So, oh, that's, that's it. We missed out on section C, that the wife must fear a husband. It's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Any questions before we... Make, is, is it ready? It's ready. Okay, no questions. Um, you can ask me... <laughs> You can ask me later. You can ask me privately. Okay, just quickly. This is an open letter to Prime Minister Abbott on the Safe Schools Coalition, where they're teaching children that um, they're teaching children how to have gay sex and about transgenderism and things like that. So it's just a petition where you can sign and send it off, but you've got to send it off really on Monday because it has to reach this place by the 12th. Uh, read it and be shocked of what's happening in the schools. Not all schools have joined this coalition. Some schools have, Canterbury Girls, Girls, but not all of them. And there's some facts there. See? This thing is a male in a woman's, in a girl's dress. And that's what they're promoting now at the schools. But as you heard last talk, that transgenderism, as said by the psychiatrist over in America, or the head, head psychiatrist of Johns Hopkins uh, University over there, medical of the hospital, he said that transgenderism is a sickness. It's not, it's not a, what they're saying. Over here is a nice little icon, which is good, showing that conception is the start of life, showing the mother of God and Elizabeth both pregnant, showing that from the time of conception, it's a child, not like being able to take that thing. This is a new book, The Art of Salvation. So that's by Elder Friend. There's one book that's opened up the back so you can look through it. Uh, people that have read it, I haven't had a chance yet, but people that have read it, it's, it's, it's great. And that's that. Now, all the, uh, a lot of the stuff that I've got today from other faces comes from the Family Life book. And the Atticus, to say to your Himanana, is for blessed married life. So your Himanana are the patron saints of the married, of married people. And the calendars have come in. Um, that's the calendar for the whole year, if you're interested. That's at, at, at the back. Okay, stand up, please. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, God of mercy, save us. I mean, uh, God willing, in two weeks' time is the unction, which will be no talk. And that's on the 21st of December, no talk. Holy unction starts at 6pm. And the next talk, if it, it will, with God's will there, um, will be sometime in January, probably the day before the public holiday. Now, when there's a public holiday, beware that those who come... I usually go to two in the morning.
No, I stopped at the same time. But people can be more relaxed than have to rush to go home. 